have to shut that door. I'm not going to be able to hear a thing with all that banging.
There we go. All right. The, the, this is to me one of the most important, if not the most important, um, undoing or 
what we would call um, the law of the, the creative law of God or the creative order of God. Um, think about this for a moment. If God created all things in a very specific way, um, we begin to see there is this divine, a divine commonality between everything that we see. And, and um, the more, for example, the more that science is digging deeper and deeper into the, into the quantum realm, uh, string theory, quantum entanglement, um, quarks. And we know from, I know back from seventh grade science class, when I can remember looking at the diagram of, a, of an atom and, and the rotations of the electrons, the protons, and the neutrons. So this, all this cyclical circle stuff. In the law of creation, um, the creative order of God is done in such a way in order to establish a specific boundary. Um, I found an interesting quote. Um, Thomas Aquinas uh, begins to, um, he, he began to write out um, three things God cannot do, you know, and, you know, some of them are really simple for us that we've heard God cannot change, right? God cannot sin or, but there's one that um, kind of hit home with me and the more I contemplate on it, he said this, that God cannot make a triangle out of more than 180 degrees. Now, why would he say that? You know, I've looked into it since then, and, you know, they st they say that you have to have at least you can make a triangle out of um, anything 180 degrees or less, but not more. And Thomas Aquinas made the observation, uh, one of the fathers, that God cannot make a triangle with more than 180 degrees. Why would he say that? You know, I heard one, you know, when I looked into this, I heard one um, very, very intellectual gentleman say that it's because God says that when it comes to ancient knowledge and science, science wins every time. It's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that God has a divine geometry. There is um, there's something to this that is very sacred or sacred geometry. And I'm not talking about the Masons or. Uh, or, or people who have stolen some of the realities of truth from God and try to turn it or invert it into some kind of secret knowledge or secret gathering where they discuss these things, but rather that there is a divine order in the way God created things. The order of God's creation is not to put um, limitations on us, but rather to put us within um, put us in within the framework of what we can do limitlessly. I, take mystery for an example. Divine mystery is something that we must become um, not only okay with, but we need to learn how to rest assured within the realm of divine mystery because it keeps us from um, prematurely putting the capstone on God and who he is which I believe is a unlimited capstone in one essence. You think about it like this. When Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, you may have heard me discuss. Um, hold on, I got a message from somebody who wants in. Let me send her the link right now. And 
if I forget what I'm saying about the capstone, the 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 the, the first and the last one I'm sending this link, please remind me somebody when I if I ask. Okay, sending her the link now. All right, send it to her. All right, so when Jesus says I'm the first and the last, we're looking at two um, very very interesting Greek words. Is it's proton. The first means he, I'm the first is proton. The last is eschaton. And why is this important? Because this is where we derive our scientific teachings or our biblical teachings of protology and eschatology. Now, there's eschatology has become all the rave over the past 150 years from John Nelson Darby and the development of the premillennial dispensational rapture theory and um, you know, the different types of things that we've even seen progressively to a more optimistic end time view and a victorious eschatology and things like that. But all of that, all of it, you hear me, all of that, from my perspective, from my conviction, from what I see through history, is missing the mark. It's missing the point of it. Because eschatology is the study of last things. Protology is the study of first things. If eschatology becomes our focus, we once again are equipping and training people to deviate from the present, the now, and to self-project um, their ideas or their theories into some future event that's always about to but never is. Because, beloved, I want to hear my heart here, and, and trust me when I say I'm not saying this haphazardly. The way the final return of Jesus is going to happen is not like what we've been told. It is a becoming that brings forth an appearing. The first coming of Jesus Christ came because there was someone who had a yes in her mouth at, at, the, um, at the conversation that began between Mary and Gabriel, the archangel. Be it unto me according to thy word. There's this an agreement. And then within the incarnation, what we have is a divine mystery. Because this divine mystery has caused no small amount of controversy. From people rejecting the idea of a virgin birth to people having to come up with different ideas to justify previously false doctrines, such as things like um, original sin, original guilt. Uh, original guilt is to say we're all guilty of Adam's, and we're not all guilty of Adam's sin. We were all in Adam when he sinned, so therefore we have all inherently been affected by sin, but we're not guilty of his sin. We're guilty of what we do and what we don't do in that sense. So what the Catholic Church began to develop was something called the Immaculate Conception. So they would say that Mary was without sin as well, or God made Mary without sin so that she would be a worthy vessel to give birth to the son so that he wouldn't be affected by Adam's sin. Um, again, I've, I've dove into that in the past years. Um, several years ago, I've read, I've studied it and studied it, and it's just like, ah, oh, this is just nuts. Um, again, I think we have made it much more complicated than what it needs to be. Nothing ever happens to God. God happens to everything else. Nothing ever happens to God. God happens to everything else. When God 
shows up. Let me, let me, I'll show you something. I'll give you an example. Let me grab this. All right, let's think about, let's think from a, about communion. All right, you see this little cup in my hand? It's a little cup and it's got the wool wafer in it. All right. The Orthodox faith believes that when this is blessed, this thing right here becomes the real presence, the real blood, the real body of Christ. I believe that too. But I don't think that the person who developed it or cooked the bread or made the, made the wine, I don't believe they were without sin. What makes it, what makes it sacramental then is not that it was made by the hands of a sinless man or sinless woman. Rather, what makes it sacramental is that it becomes sanctified by the presence of God. Nothing ever happens to God. God always happens to it. God is the one who cannot be contained by anything or anyone, but he contains all things. That's Irenaeus. Um, so I think, what, third century. So when we begin to develop this paradigm, we will begin to see everything different. Another example, when Jesus walks down to the Jordan and he gets baptized, the waters did not change him. He changed the waters. So when he stepped into the waters, the waters become sacramental because he who is holy just made the waters sacramental. And what we see is symbolically, if we want to see types and shadows in order to understand a fuller extent of the manifestation of the substance, do you know that the name of the name Jesus in English is actually translated as Joshua? How many of you know that? All right. Then the name Jesus and the name Joshua is both Yeshua in Hebrew. All right. So Moses is a representation of the, the, the Levitical priesthood, the ruling chiefs, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Jesus is the one who comes that says, you're not going to be able to enter in. I'm going to be the one that leads them into the promise. When Joshua, on the eve of taking the children of Israel across Jordan, the very place Jesus is baptized, um, the priest who have the Ark of the Covenant mounted on their shoulders, the moment they step into the waters, the waters part. Um, the scripture teaches us that the water rolled back to Adam. The water, Jordan represents the stream of time. And that when the sanctified, the sacred comes into um, contact with that which has only produced sin and death, sin and death doesn't overcome it. Sin and death doesn't taint it. Rather, when that which is corrupt touches that which is um, holy, that which is perfect, that which is corrupt doesn't change to perfect. God cannot be changed. So God changes. That's why I said nothing happens to God. God happens to everything else. So the moment that they step to the waters, the water representing time and humanity, it rolls back. There's a going back to back in time, all the way back to original sin, all the way back to Adam. And it cuts it off. It's as a circumcision. This is the reason why when we get water baptized today, 
there is sacramental. Why is it sacramental? It's sacramental because it symbolizes that we are cutting away the foreskin of our heart. It is baptism becomes the circumcision of the new covenant. I'm not saying that uh, we're out and we're not in covenant with God. If we don't go get dipped in the waters, I'm saying that there's something beautifully sacramental about it. And, and it's, Interesting that Jesus steps into the same waters that Joshua crossed, and he's baptizing those waters because he is sanctifying the waters. But even more so, what's going on here? I see that John says, welcome, my brother, Justin. Is he needing it again, or is he in? Okay, he's in, I guess. There he is. So the moment, um, there you are, Joe. That's, that's my friend right there. We've We've actually we've been roommates and everything else in the past. That's that's my friend right there. The moment that Jesus steps into these waters, Luke four, Matthew four, it's it's Jesus is now fully identifying, fully immersing himself within the human condition, the fallen human condition. Jesus has got in the element. He's got into the matter within the space, signifying that he in his incarnation is the time prophet. He is the, he is the, he, yes, he's God. He's the son of God, the son of man. He's the Messiah. Uh, he's many things, the wonderful counsel, principle, all these things, but he is also a prophet, but not just any prophet. He is the prophet of time. The one who calls things, um, he calls those things which be not as they are he's the one that not a word he speaks falls to the ground because if his word fell to the ground creation would implode and cease to exist because according to hebrews chapter one i believe verse three he holds all things together by the power of his word he is the word made flesh so that's just a little um um foundation here for what i'm going to read here in ephesians 4 i want to read this to you uh present it to you then we're going to open it up for dialogue ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 by the way ephesians 4 is the um is the chapter that we get into the fivefold ministry and that's where everybody likes to go and contextually contextually we butcher it if we don't understand the context prior to it simply put for those of you listening um we need to understand that if I was to write a five-page letter and I sent it to Shaney, and Shaney skipped over the entire letter, read the, the fourth page of it, three sentences on the fourth page, underlined it, and went around telling everybody this is what Shane said, and this is what Shane believes, and this is where Shane's, it wouldn't be faithful because it's not staying true to the the overarching narrative from the first page to the last page. But yet we think it's okay to take biblical scriptures and cherry pick them or theologically it's called proof texting. So we think it's okay to proof text that. Well, the Bible says this, um, it may say that, but it probably doesn't mean that unless you understand what the author is talking about. This is called contextual criticism, contextual biblical Textual or contextual criticism is not becoming critical of the scriptures. It's becoming critical in the way we have read them and interpreted them so that we can get a handle 
or a, a better understanding of what the text is saying. So if you want to know what Ephesians 4.11, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work and ministry until we all come into the unity of the faith, to the measure of a perfect man to the full measure of the stature of Christ. If we really want to know what that is, we got to read all of it contextually and bear in mind what Paul is wanting us, what Paul is trying to convey to us before he gets to the part of fivefold ministry. And we for somehow in our Burger King world, we like to skip a lot of stuff that doesn't seem like it's um, possibly relevant for us. So with that said, Ephesians 4.1, I urge, therefore, and I'm reading out of the um, interlinear, the Greek, so um, it may not read as smoothly, but it's going to be accurate. I urge, therefore, you, talking to Timothy, he says, um, no, I mean, he's talking to the church of Ephesus. He goes, I heard, but he probably is talking to Timothy because Timothy is Bishop of Ephesus. I'm just not sure if he was Bishop at this time. I need to look into that a little bit more. I urge therefore you, I, the prisoner in the Lord. Now watch this. He doesn't say of the Lord as you would read. He said, I am the prisoner in the Lord. So he, Paul is, first of all, Paul is, um, is showing us that his natural imprisonment in bars he is saying that though they have me locked up in a prison, this isn't because I'm a prisoner of them or a prisoner of them. Rather, he's saying I am a prisoner. I am a prisoner, but my but I am a prisoner in the Lord. So he first allowed the Lord to apprehend him, arrest him, so that even if he got locked up in a natural prison, he would not take it personally. Say. And blame them for locking me up. I'm in your prison. No, he said, I'm in the Lord's prison. And because I'm in the Lord's prison, I am not going to look at this natural circumstance as something that's going to um, weigh on me and worry me and get me down. So good, bro. So he goes on to say here, walk worthily or worthily to walk of the calling. So he's saying the calling that you have, you have to walk it out as one is be worthy of the calling because he says with which you were called with all humility and meekness of uh, the Greek here in the all is um, with utmost is the, the a better Greek translation here with utmost humility and meekness with long suffering or patience bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit. <laughs> Okay, so he's saying we need to be diligent to keep the unity of the spirit, right? In the bond of what? Peace. Now, if we go to Ephesians 4, when we go on further in Ephesians chapter 4, we start looking at uh, verse 11, and we start talking about the unity of the faith. And we think, and we've been told that the unity of the faith is when the fivefold ministry is able to be able to represent Christ in such a way that we all get our doctrinal certitudes in order and we can check off our list. We get our fire insurance papers and our life insurance papers all done. And we repeated the magical prayer um, of salvation so that when we stand before God, we say, God, here's my fire insurance papers. Here's my life insurance papers. And um, here's my paper that says I repeated the sinner's prayer just like I was told to. Well, that's not salvation. It is not, never has been, and never will be. This is dangerous. The salvific grace of our Lord Jesus Christ operates through us, first of all, um, on a global scale because the proverbial, our What's the word I'm looking for when something's been provided? Um, but you want to say, 
per, it's not proverbial. That's proverbial. It's a proverb. But anyway, he's provided a general grace for all mankind. That's the reason why, no matter who you are, rather you are a Satanist or you are a, a, um, a holy monk in Mount Athos, each one of those people has the ability to be to hear God. How? Well, we'll get into that. So we see here that there is a bond of peace we're commanded to keep, to keep the unity of the spirit. Verse 4 explains it. So if we want to know what verse 11, verse 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Ephesians 4 is talking about when he starts pulling out fivefold ministry, the fivefold ministry has a purpose, but it's not the purpose that we think. I'll make a disclaimer right now. Fivefold ministry is not about teaching and preaching about apostles. Fivefold ministry is not about teaching and preaching on sonship, spiritual sons, spiritual fathers, garbage, 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 because nobody ever even means it. It's really all truly, truly, truly. It's about ego. It's about telling somebody how many sons they got, how many daughters they got. And Lord, well, you don't love them because you, you get, you'll be upset a little bit if they leave, but more than anything, you're upset because you had them working as your slave or your hand, your, your handmaiden or your manservant. You, you have created spiritual plantations in the name of the Lord and you've got people in bondage and you want them to strike your ego. And you'll notice that anybody that has a really strong personality that's within the faith or claims to be within the faith, specifically somebody calls themselves an apostle, that if they have any form of strength of substance, but yet if you notice that every single person that's with them is very, very weak-minded, um, they're yes men, they don't push back, they, don't, they, know, they know better to question because they realize that the law of love has been, um, has been bastardized under the rule of the apostle is always right, rule number one. Rule number two, um, if the apostle's ever wrong, wrong, refer back to rule number one. So there's this idea that you don't get to question. You don't get to. And if you do, you get thrown under the bus. Ask me how I know I've got the T-shirt. You know, I really do more than once. You think I would learn. You know, they say burn me once. Um, shame on you, but burn me twice. Shame on me. Well, shame on me the second time. But nonetheless, this is what's going on here. There's this there's this ego need to have people continually telling you how good you are, how smart you are, how much light and revelation you are, because it's, um, it's a false humility and it's really, it's a false religion. It'll, it'll, it'll pass through the fire of God on that day and whatever's not kingdom, true kingdom, is going to be burned away. Wood, hay, stubble. We're all passed through the fire. We will all pass through that fire. Um, it's important that we try to get as much right now, while we're in this life so that um, we have everlasting things that's been stored up when we do stand before God on that day. So we see the bond of peace. Verse four, he's going to tell us what this bond of peace is. There is one body, one, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And you have what? One Lord, one faith, one bat. You see the unity here. One faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, the one over all, and through all, and in all. Let's look at that a moment. The whole idea of create the creative order of God, you're going to see consistently from the quantum realm 
to cosmology, astrology. You're going to look through the scriptures. You're going to find something that's really interesting. It's called the law of three. The law of three, when it is in the operations of God, is a law of union. Say that again. The law of three is a law of union. Um, if we begin to understand God's creative order, we'll, I think it's going to help us get a handle on how God can be one God, yet three distinct individual persons or individual hypostasis. In other words, they are who they are as individuals, but not outside of the whole. So that wherever the Father is, the Son and the Spirit is there. Wherever the Spirit is, the Father and Son is there. Wherever the Son is, the Spirit and the Son is there. So there's always a union within their threeness. Let's get a handle on this. So Paul says we have one God and Father of us all. So he says, he says, the one who is over all, through all, and in us all, or in all. When God said, let there be light, something's happening here. When he said, let there be light, the moment he said, let there be, he has created time. Okay? To let something have movement, movement Movement doesn't exist outside of time. There is no movement where there's no time because there's no way to be. Movement defines that time is happening. Watch the clock. Movement, movement is the proof that we are within a place called space, a place moving through time, a place made up of matter. So the three laws or the, the order of creation, when God said, let there be light, there is, there, there is space, God is over all, there's time, God is through all, and there's matter, God is in all. I'm, I'm, I'm breaking this down slowly, but I want it to be clear. I'm, I, it's like I told, uh, you know, I'm not about quantity, I want quality. And I want to know that those that are tuning in are going to be able to get this and grow and become who God is, has really purposed you to be all along. So, I've often asked the question in the past um, to myself more than anything. I've accepted it, but more in long lines of like, this must be some kind of a metaphor or, or an ancient idiom I don't understand. But it's this one. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb slain, well, for the lamb to be slain from the foundation of the world would require him to be incarnate. But yet we know, according to Galatians chapter four, verse four, it was in the fullness of time. Keep keep your keep your um, keep your your intellectual hands hold hold on to this word time. So if it's, it was in the fullness of time that Christ was born of a virgin, born under the law, that he literally the Son of God, who is the eternal second person of the Godhead, who has eternally lived with the Father. This is why we need to pay attention to the creeds. Something that we need to discuss in the future as well, because we didn't the creeds, the creeds are the reason why we have a canon. The regula fidei is Latin, is the rule of our faith. It is, it is, according to Irenaeus in his book on the demonstration of apostolic preaching, 
who was a Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Beloved, the one who wrote Revelation, the one who wrote God, the Gospel of John and First, Second, Third John. Irenaeus had authentic apostolicity um, is the word. So when he says this is the rule of our John, uh, Irenaeus says this is the rule of our faith. Then he says, and it is the stability of our conversation. So the conversation that we have concerning God has no stability outside the regular fidei. The real faith was the plumb line or the measuring rod in order to see what would come and go into the canon of the New Testament, what would be left out of the canon of the New Testament. It's really important we understand that because this is why the Orthodox Church would say that the scriptures are the authoritative, inspired, inscripturated word, but they would also hold to the fact that the capital T tradition is just as inspired and holds just as much authority. Now, our Protestant brothers and sisters are going to reject that idea and even start screaming out, um, heresy, heresy. They don't know what they're talking about. It's just the truth. They've not studied these people, but it's still, I'm much more concerned about obtaining the ancient faith that was once for all handed down to us than I am a hand-me-down regurgitated mess that's done nothing but cause division. This is why I believe wisdom is justified by her children. Don't come and tell me what you think when everything you do in operation creates chaos and not order. Because God is a God of order. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when we read that uh, let everything be done decently and in order. Now, we like to take that so we can control everybody. We don't know what order he's talking about. That's the reason why we try to control everyone. So when God said, let there be light, time begins. Now, if we realize that God is overall, through all, and in all, we're looking at something very Trinitarian here in the writings of Paul. The Father, the Father is over all. The Son is through all, and the Spirit is in all. All things. Why is this important? Because... If you go back and you begin to reflect on the deist, uh, the deist teachings um, of ancient, ancient um, Greek philosophy, they believed, and there was arguments and different things, discussions going on, that they believed that God, whoever he is or whoever he was in their mind, was the creator or the maker of all things. But they believe that as a carpenter takes trees and different material to build what he's building, that God made all things out of uh, previously made material. So in other words, God took pre-existing material and created the galaxy or created the cosmos, created the earth, created man. So God, they would say that God made all things by pre-existing matter. Um, there's a problem with this. Because they didn't understand how could God make something out of himself without losing a part of himself. This is deep. And I know, that's, I know that I'm talking to some people that can, can think deep with me here. They would question creation because how could God create everything out of nothing without losing or, or, any, or any of his own strength, his essence, or himself be subtracted from himself? Well, it's important that we understand this question. Again, God said, let there be light. 
we think oftentimes, or in our mind, the way we're programmed to think, we would see it like this. Here's God. How are we see him? Rather, he's this big ball of light or this grant, the Santa Claus looking guy up there sitting on the throne. And out of his mouth. And then here's God and everything's going that way being created. But that's not how it operates. Say, so how can God be so big? Well, how can we be so small? I'm asking this question. How we say, well, how can God be that big? How can we be so small? Do you think that the ants in their little world, doing their little thing, making their best, working in union in a community of storing and building tunnels and a home to protect the queen? Do you think that these ants look at us and say, wow, we're small and they're big? What about in a subatomic world? Is that small? Because you could take one, um, one atom and discover that within the one atom, there's a whole entire subatomic world. That if you can go, if you can invert, if you can, if you could invert what we would understand as um, breadth, width, length, depth, height, we could invert all that. We would go subatomic and realize that the subatomic world is infinitely as small as the universe is infinitely big. It's perspective. It's not called. It's not called uh, small atomic particles. It's called sub. Um, it's it's. There's a reason why it's understood because the perception of what's big and what's small is us and them, black and white. It is first level thinking. There's no critical thinking skills that's been implemented here. There's no. Um, there's no. There's no ability to see things in a way that connects other things. So we keep it as an us and them, not recognizing that what we're really trying to do is find who God is in all of it. So when God creates and he says, let there be, and we see space, time, and matter, he doesn't speak it and produce it or create it outside of himself. Everything he created was not created outside of himself. Everything he created was inside of himself. It was all done within him, not outside of him. So that when he said, let there be light, and he formed, the earth was formed of void and dark, and we, we can get into some ideas on that another time. But all of creation in the first six days, the creative process was within the context of space, time, and matter, all three of them. It was all create, all creation comes within existence through God who's over all, through all, and in all, space, time, and matter, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is, the Father is over all things, all things were created within him, not outside of him. And then the moment that all things are created, he says, let there be, he gives time permission to begin. So time becomes the factor that unfolds everything else within the context of the space so that matter can develop, that matter can form, that matter can emerge, that matter can come forth. And once God gets it all set up, he then says, let us make man in our image. So to make man in our image, then he has to have an image to make. Uh, there has to be an image for him to make it after. But yet we read and understand that God is an invisible God. And we read in the Gospel of John that no man has ever seen God but the Son. No man has ever seen him. No man has known him. So we go from Genesis to Malachi trying to get our doctrine, and none of these guys knew who he was or could see him. They had ideas. They had what we would call um, progressive revelation. They got a glimpse here and there. 
They didn't know him. So when Jesus comes, see the story of the Old Testament, it's not about being, um, it really isn't. You, you, you know, this may be new to some of you, but the Old Testament is not about everything being exactly right. It's about God entrusting to faithful men the revelation that would ultimately keep them focused that a Messiah would come that would deliver them from sin and death. So God has always been one who wants us to participate with him from the very beginning. Why? Because in the creed, when we read about God the Father, we read that he is Father before he's creator. So we read in that first article of the creed, I believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. So before we, we, before we even think about him being a judge or creator, or before we think about him as being anything else, eternally, infinitely, he's always been Father. And you can't be eternally Father unless you have a son who's been eternally with you as well. So... Um, the ancients would call it, I believe it's um, Hilary of Poitiers, or it could have been Maximus Confessor, or both of them, would say it like this. They would say, oh, it was it was Hillary. Hillary said this in defense of the, uh, in defense of the Trinity in light of the Arian heresy, which were people who believed that Jesus was lesser than God the Father, not seen. They were attacking the divinity of Jesus. That's what Arianism is. So when we begin to look at what's going on here, um, Hillary would say this to them, and he would say, you would ask me the question, if God the Father is eternally unbegotten, then when, this is this whole idea of when, you think about the word when, when signifies time. When was the Son begotten? So you have the father, the father is the unbegotten God and the son is the begotten of the father. And um, Hillary would say, hey, um, this is foolish to even try to talk about this. Matter of fact, when they hammered the stuff out, they would say these are things we shouldn't even talk about, but we're forced to talk about these things due to the heretical doctrines. So this is what he would say. I suppose that the moment that the father was unbegotten is when the son was begotten, which means that there has never been a time. There's been never been a time at least that we can fathom because we don't understand eternity because eternity is beyond us. We've been given the gift of eternity to spend eternity to know the Father, but we don't understand it because we're still so far in the beginning of all of this. So what we see is an eternal Father and an eternal Son. The Father is the one who creates all things. So everything's created out of the place of relationship. Everything is created and exists in the formation of his love. When I say the formation, I'm not saying his love had to have formation. I'm saying his eternal love begins to form all things. So the formation of all things develops because of his love. So when God breathed the breath of life into man and man became a living soul, we're talking about Adam, who breathed into his nose, his nostrils, the father or the son or the Holy Spirit? I'll let you answer that question, and then we'll talk about it. All three. Okay. I agree with that, and that's that's what I believe is correct. Let me ask you, let me rephrase it. Who was Adam looking at directly when his eyes opened? 
Out of the God, let me ask you, ask you, out of the Godhead, which one has a pair of legs? Jesus. That's right. He's the only one that came in flesh. Okay, perfect. But yet we read that Jesus was not in the flesh until the fullness of time, 2,000 years ago. But yet we can crisscross this and say, but the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Mm, that's good. All right, let's look at it this way. God. Yes, God. The Father. We were created in His image. Yes, that's correct, Star. We are we were created in His image, and in His likeness. So the image and the likeness of God is the one who looks like a son of man. Let's look at it this way. All right, God, He is over all through all and all all right so if jesus then is going to make a comment or remark like this i am the beginning and the end what is beginning and end what type of words are these and i don't mean verbs i don't mean noun. i mean what are they descriptive of what what does the word beginning what is it descriptive of In the words of Tracy Lawrence, time marches on, <laughs> time marches on. Say it again, Shane. You faded out. I couldn't hear what you said. All right. Um, the word beginning and the word end, what are those two words descriptive of? Time. You time. mean beginning and end? Yes. yes. Time. They are descriptions of time. So Jesus is the only person in the Godhead who who through his incarnation moves through time the father is over time space and matter the son is through time space and matter and the spirit is in space time and matter yet the three perfectly represent the one god in such a way that as saint augustine would say um he called it the, the doctrine of inseparable operations, which means that they never do anything apart from the other. And to see the Father is to see the Son, and to see the Son is to see the Father, and to see the Spirit is to see the Son of the Father, and to see the Son is to see the Father and the Spirit. So you and even and to see a saint, one of us, who's passing to that glory is to see the Father, Son, and Spirit. To the untrained, purified soul. You will not, you can, you will never, you cannot see someone who has went into the glory and know the difference between that person and Jesus. Revelation chapter 19 tells us this. And I'll read that to you quickly as we progress here. Revelation 19 says, go on there now. All right, we're going to look at about verse 9. And the messenger that was with John is saying this in verse nine. He says to me, right, blessed are those who to the marriage supper of the wedding of the lamb have been called or invited. And he says to me, these words are true, the true words of God. Verse 10 says, and John, John says, I fell before his feet to worship him. 
Why would he worship this dude? Did he not know any better? Even ancient, the ancient Jews before Christianity knew not to worship anything other than the than God. But yeah, John's wor- John falls at his feet to worship him, and he says, "See that you don't do it." Is what he said. I am a fellow bond servant. I am of your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. In the beatific vision, which means when our eyes are open to see him, we become like him because we see him as he is. So to see one in the glory is to see the son. It is, there is such a profound, there's such a profound transformation that has happened at this point that these people who have entered into his glory look just like him. Because they have become like it. They have conformed into his image, okay? So we see that. right. That's why he goes on to verse 10. He says, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So anything that doesn't, anything that we call prophecy that does not bring forth the manifestation of Jesus in our life is false. It's that simple. It's that simple. If it's not declaring the testimony, the martyrion is the Greek or what we call is the uh, mar- he's the martyrdom of the testimony of Jesus Christ, the witness of Jesus Christ, is what the spirit of prophecy looks like. That means that we have become completely and totally love slaves for the triune God, and that testifies of him. That is the witness of him, and that is the spirit of the prophetic. That's what it looks like. So go back to Ephesians here and work our way on down a little bit further as we're looking at this overall, through all, and in all. So if he's overall, through all, and in all, then we realize that it is the Father that's over all things. All things were created in him, not apart from him, not outside of him. This is why Athanasius would say, this is so powerful, that if God being good... God, if God being good, um, saw his good creation after the fall, after sin, they, after they had lost their minds, they were slipping off into non-being or destruction or perishing. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have what everlasting life. What's this word perish? It doesn't mean eternal conscious torment. It means non-existent. Yeah, I know this stretches us. I know this stretches us, but it's it's what it says. You'll never find Paul talking. Paul will never talk about anything that resembles eternal conscious torment ever. Paul will talk about those who are perishing. Though the outward man perish. The inward man's renewed day by day. Well, then he talks about for those who were outside of the covenant, outside of the promise, were perishing. What, what's good? They were lapsing into non-existence because there is no life outside of his presence. So to if we if we uh, begin to realize what this means, how profound this actually is, it's going to change our paradigm completely. When we begin to realize God's overall. The entire creative order, the entire, the furthest reaches of the galaxies to the um, to the most invisible subatomic particle, he's over all of it. 
He's through all of it, and he's in all of it. That means there's no separation. It also means that God can do whatever he wants to within himself without any loss of who he is. In other words, God can create, and it doesn't subtract anything from his being. Because what he creates isn't outside of him. What he creates is inside of him. Um, bishop Veron Ash was a Orthodox priest or Orthodox bishop who was also a fireball Pentecostal style preacher that would get booked out. And he would say it this way. He would preach to, you know, he preached to the thousands in the um, in Oklahoma at the Dome. And he would say, in God. This is what he said. He said, in God, and he's right about this. He would say, in God is the universe. Inside the universe, there is the galaxies. Um, within one of these galaxies, there is our solar system, our sun, the planets that make its revolution 365 days around the sun for the earth anyway. He said, and then within the earth, he says, there is a country called the United States. Within the United States, there's a state called Oklahoma. And with within Oklahoma, there's a little place called Tulsa. And within Tulsa, there is this dome. And within this dome, there is you. And within you, there's God. And within God, there is the universe. And within the universe, there is the cosmos. Within the cosmos, there is the galaxy Milky Way. Within that, there is the sun. Around the sun, there's the earth. Around the earth, there's this country called the United States. And in the United States, there's Oklahoma. And within Oklahoma, there's Tulsa. Within Tulsa, there's this dome. And sitting inside this dome, listen to me speak right now, there is you and in you, there's God. So what I'm saying, overall, through all, and in all. When we get this, when we get this, is probably the most important thing you're ever going to be able to wrap your wrap your um, sanctified imagination around, because this is the key to the eliminating of the delusion of the us and them mentality. I don't care if we're talking about black and white or Muslim and Christian or atheist and Satanist. God is over them too. He's through them too, and He's in them too. We don't have the right. We don't. We don't have permission to say it's not so. We don't have so that good. right. We think we do. We think we got the right to say, I put God in my box. And this is who God is. No, listen, what we are doing today, beloved, is that most of us, I'm not talking about you and me, but I'm talking about we've all been on the journey. So I'm included here. We have worshiped a God who we created in our own imagination. We've not, and, and the Lord loves us because he is over us. He's through us and in us, even when we're worshiping a false God. And he's saying, I'm going to use it to get their attention, but I don't want them to stay here. Because the whole purpose of the Messiah coming is to bring light to our darkness. Because what sin did was not kill us in the sense of giving us spiritual death. Spiritual death is an illusion. It's a lie. To say somebody's spiritually dead means they're cut off from the presence of God and they can't hear him. They can't know him unless there is a regenerating work in the Holy Spirit. How in the world can somebody even know they're a sinner and need to be saved if they're dead? Have you talked to any dead people lately? I know Justin, if he probably does, he's but he's not talking, he's not having conversations, he's just telling them to get back up. But my point being is that dead people don't talk. Typically, anyway. If they do, something's going on. It's, like, it's alive. You know. Anyway, <laughs> we don't the dead don't talk. So death that comes through sin is not spiritual death, it's physical death. What happens spiritually is alienation, is spiritual blindness. We become blind, we become deaf and dumb to who God is, and we are in the process of spiritual death. 
That's why the lake of fire is the second death. What is the second death? We can we can pretend it's all different kinds of things. But what that means is that you die in the flesh. And then, so I, this is a reason why I can't, I don't hold the ultimate reconciliation though. I'm, I hope, I'm, I hope there, I hope it is. I would love to find out that every single, per, but I will tell you this. You, you'll see one day, you'll see one day, there can be a whole lot more people saved than you thought there was because Romans one has been preaching to all of the creation long before Jesus coming to this earth. And if those people are without excuse and they never even heard the message of Jesus, what I don't think God's expecting more out of them than what, in other words, God has placed within their hearts eternity. This is the book of Proverbs or, the, or Ecclesiastics, I mean, which means that everybody has eternal life in them. Spiritual death is the lapsing into non-existence because we have given over to carnal desires. We've given ourselves over to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the very thing that caused Adam to lose his mind cause Eve to lose her mind. And so what Jesus is doing on this cross is he's undoing Adam. The waters roll back. He is the microcosm of the entire macro. So when Jesus is incarnate, he represents the entire created world, the, the entire universe, time, space, matter, and everything that exists within it. Jesus is the micro from that macro. So in other words, the humanness of Jesus comes out of the creative order of God, which is in God. So God, who is overall, and the moment he says, let there be, Jesus is moving through all. The moment he said, let there be, the spirit is in all. And so the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, he's putting to death in a sanctified way the entire creative ordered world. It's not just my sins go to the cross. I go to his cross. You go to his cross. My dog goes to his cross. The birds in the backyard went to the cross. The mountains over there close to John Paul is, went to the cross. The moon, the stars, the galaxies, the, 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 the micros, the, the, the subatomic part, everything exists within the context because he's a micro of the macro, which means that the reason why he can exist in this earth as God and a man at the same time is because he put on what is necessary to live, to, um, to function, and to survive and thrive in this created world. That's the reason why we live here is because we came out of it. We couldn't be an alien and live here because it wouldn't be conducive for us. The reason why we live on this earth, breathe the air, um, eat its food that it produces for us, the water we drink. This, this entire planet is a living organism. Do you know that? Do you know the earth is alive? That's the reason why the book of Revelation goes on to say that those who are going to be extremely judged are they who destroy the earth. But it seems like we don't care that much anymore, and we sure don't care about people. And this is a shame. Because what we don't realize is that because he's overall through all and in all, we're all connected to each other. We are all connected in a very deep way. Thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor as yourself, but you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't know how to love yourself the way God loves you. So he's overall through all in all. Space, time, matter. And this is the unity that we're trying to get to here. Because it's going to change everything. So, okay, let's look at this lamb was slain from the foundation of the world then. Slain from the foundation of the world. That means God who's overall, through all, in all. Let's look at it this way. 
if God is through all time, well, watch this, eschaton, proton, eschatology, he's the beginning, he's the end. This isn't to say, it's one thing to say, well, this means that in God's predetermined plan and purpose, he foreordained that the son would be crucified, the lamb would be crucified in the fullness of time, and then he's going to keep on working this thing out until it's finished. Um, uh, no, 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 no. That's a very shallow way of looking at that. Jesus is through time. This is what we learn in any kind of school theology concerning the nature of God. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and immutable, which means omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing. Omnipresent, he's present in all places at all times, and he's immutable, he's unchangeable. The, 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 um, the omnipresence of God then gives us an understanding that out from within the context of creation, he is not just over all creation, but he's over or through all time, every time, every possibility of time, every single decision and choice you'll ever make, every decision and choice I'll ever make, and every decision choice everybody has ever made from the beginning of the world to now. And, and for eternity until the end, until, until all, you know, whatever that looks like at the end where the very last human being, he is through every single second of their time. That means that he is with you 20 years from now in the present. Even though it's the future for you, it's the now for God. Let me show it to you this way. What this means, beloved, is that the omnipresence of God, which Jesus is the person of the Godhead that deals with time. He's the lamb slain from, the incarnate one. He is the one through all time. And therefore, for him, being omnipresent, he has no past. He has no future. Beloved, God, you got to get this. God does not, the triune God, I'm talking about the Son here, but they're the same. They do. They have different operations. That's the economic trinity. These the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. They're the same in what they all have. They're all the same essence. Hamoousian, according to Athenae, not Hamoousia, which is Arius. Hamoousia means um, Jesus is of a similar or like essence of the Father, but Hamoousian means that Jesus is of the exact essence of the Father. So, but Jesus dealing with Jesus has to one through time. That Jesus is omnipresent. It doesn't just mean he's in China and here at the same time. It means he's in all time at the same time. So God does not have a past. God doesn't have a past. God doesn't have a future. But the past and the future are present in him as a now. Are you getting that? So the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, though time begins and his creative order operates through time because of, because of him being the divine God, the divine son of God and omnipresent, the moment time is created, all time has already been fulfilled in him. I'm letting this sink in. The moment God said, let there be, before the serpent even deceived the woman and Adam partook of the fruit as well. And the enemy is in this. Listen, we think the devil's smart. He, he's, 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 he's not. He's ruthless. 
He has ancient tactics. He understands he understands corruption and human nature that's been followed. He understands certain scriptures because he can use them against us. But he's not he's but he's he's in darkness. Therefore, he doesn't see he's blind. Satan is a blind devil. <laughs> he is blind. You say, well, how could he be blind when he was the one in the presence of God? Well, how could Adam be in the presence of God and be blind? How could Adam and Eve perfectly understand the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but yet the moment they sin, they go and hide? Why are they hiding? Who are they hiding from? The shame. You can't stand in what's holy. You can't stand in what's holy and pure with shame in your heart. The first thing that has to happen to come boldly before the throne of grace is you got to have an understanding or a faithful reading of the scripture that teaches us that we come boldly before the throne of grace because he has eliminated shame. This is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ. It's not those who walk out of the flesh, but in the spirit. That, that is not even the right translation, guys. That's a horrible translation that's been put in there because people wanted to put it back on us. Um, the Mirror Study Bible, um, a very beautiful, beautiful man of God, profound theologian, translating the New Testament, says this according to Romans 8.1. You know, we read it, and there's therefore now no combination of those who walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You know, we walk, don't walk after the flesh, though, but walk after the Spirit. But let me read to you his translation. Now... The decisive conclusion is this. In Christ, every bit of condemning evidence against us is canceled. Now he has in parentheses, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. This sentence was not in the original text, but later copied from verse four. The person who added this most probably felt that the fact of Paul's declaration of mankind's innocence had to be made subject again to a person's conduct. Hello? When Jesus said it is finished, it is a scandalous, it is a scandalous um, act or work of salvation. It is so scandalous that we don't get to vote on it. We don't get no say on the matter. We can, we can say what we want to. It doesn't make it any different that's why covenant the renewed covenant is not between man and god but between god and god so that the son of god this is why they would say listen if jesus was not god then we could not be saved because nobody can save us but god but yet if jesus wasn't a man we still wouldn't be saved because jesus had to become the offering and the one who offers the offering so it takes him both becoming god I mean, excuse me, that's wrong. Don't don't repeat that because he's always been God. It takes Jesus, who is God, becoming a man in order for him to be the one who is the one who is the sanctified and the sanctifier of the human race. He's the sanctified and the sanctifier of the entire cosmos. So that within the context of the framework here of what he did in time, everything was finished before it ever began so that in the fullness of time we're just now catching up to the story you hear me two thousand years ago time is just now time in a chronological sense mingled with kairos moments or those opportune times that that come forth from a prophetic word from a prophet all of this is within 
a catching up per se. It is the it is the stream of time all coming to a crescendo, to a to a conclusion, to a um to a to a to a teleology, a telos, a finishing place, so that when Jesus is on the cross. Though it happens within the context of our time, it is just now catching up to something that has already happened in God before we understood time. So to say that time is, I know this is deep, but I want, if you can focus it and try to catch this, um, I'm trying to make it more as simple as I can. In God being through all time, all time was finished from the moment time began. He has no past. He has no future. Past and future is in his presence, the present of God, the now of God. There's no past. There's no future in God. It's all in one moment in him. So that means that the protology and the eschatology, the first things, the last things, the beginning and the end of all things had already happened in him the moment that time began because he's omnipresent you got that so it's a finished work from the get-go so the enemy who's in darkness thinking that he's going to play this cosmic chess game against god trying to wipe out everybody that looks like a messiah until the fullness of time and jesus comes he was already he had already lost his battle before he started this battle it, it, it it's it's it's, it's, it's what it looks like to walk in darkness and think we're going to get this thing done or figure something out or do it ourselves. I, I like what he writes in the mirror Bible. He calls it the DIY religion or the DIY tree. Do it yourself tree, the tree of knowledge. He calls the tree of knowledge the DIY tree. It's to do it yourself. We can do it. We don't need God. That's the reason why the mark of the beast is a number of man tripled into the, to, into the idea of Trinitarian um, humanity. It's man saying, I'm God. I don't need God. That's the mind of the beast. It's not necessarily evil. It's us doing it ourselves. It's us believing that. And this is the reason why I think Jesus says not many rich people enter the kingdom. He's not saying you can't have money. He's saying that in the larger scope of what it looks like for those who have had wealth in the earth, they don't trust in God because they trust in their riches. They trust in their power. They trust in their ego. So we're working all this thing out. Okay, let's open up for questions now. Or responses or dialogue. Hmm. Some feedback, maybe. Did I, did I go too deep or did you, you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to show you here? The point of this, guys, is this. When we begin to, you it, it, listen, it's one thing to hear it. So that sounds cool or that sounds good. It's another thing that when you keep in mind this question, who is Jesus? So this is what we're looking for. This is the answer. And when you can catch a glimpse of him, it dismantles all of the pre. Okay, so looking at why did Jesus then have to die? What was the point of that? Well, yeah, he, he for sin, yes, all of these different, but what was what's going on in the creative order? Remember, I think it's Genesis 8. It's um, as long as the earth remains, seed, time, harvest, death, burial, 
resurrection. Watch this. Um, order, disorder, reorder. You see what I'm showing? It is the cycle of this. It's, um, it's um, fall, winter, spring. It's, it's, the se it's the seasonal aspect of all of this. It's, it's, it's God showing us that in your life, you will experience multiple times death, burial, resurrection. That which is that was part of you at one time fades away. You go through a very discouraging or or sad season. This is death, and then new life comes, and you have hope again. It's the resurrection. It's the way God has always operated. Space, time, matter. All of this is something that had already been perfectly finished. From the very beginning, this is why he chose us from the foundations of the earth to be conformed to the image. So we've been predestined into what the adoption of sons. It's not we, we it's not. A, this is again, this is this first level thinking. You know, if we start moving through the stages of consciousness, um, the, the, the black and white type of thinking you, it's this idea that, well, it's either he predestined everything we do, and uh, if I drop a pen, God predestined that I'll drop the pen, or it's free will and God didn't predestine. It's not either or, it's both and. Predestination isn't because he takes away our free will. Predestination is that because of everything that has ever happened, watch this, that which was shall be, and there's no new thing under the sun. Is that through our perspective or through God's perspective? It's through God's perspective. There's no new thing. Why? Because everything that has ever happened has happened. Everything that ever will be, will be. What, this, I'm not, there is a truth in determination, in determinism, but not from the idea that everything is just, just out of our hands. But it's more about a replay of what's happened in the sense of God's infinite understanding. It's that he's already went on the journey with you. So he already knows he's already went on the journey. He's experienced it with you. So he experiences every moment with you as if it's the very first time he's experienced it. But yet at the same time, he's infinitely aware of every single opportunity or every moment or every anything that could ever happen. So he's not caught off guard by the mistake. But yet at the same time, he's able to rejoice with you because he's it's experienced past, present and future all in your present now that's why he would say the hour comes and now is that the dead will hear the voice of the son of god he's saying it's going to happen for your future but in my now it's a done deal the hour comes and now is true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth neither in the temple in jerusalem or in the mountain of samaria will they come to worship but they will worship my father in spirit and in truth what's going on here there's this now dimension that he's saying it may be in the future for you but it's the now for me because i've already went there the cross is finished before it starts so it just what has already been finished throughout all of time overall through all and in all is playing out within the stream of time that we are living in in order to become who we've been designed to be god is a big deal guys so we say, is it open theism or classical theism? Neither one. They're both wrong. It's the same coin. It's just two different sides. Is it Calvinism or Arminianism? They're both wrong. It's, it's, this is Protestant fluff. 
This is not orthodox faith. They did not look at it like this. They, they, they wouldn't look at it like this. Thea, a theologian has nothing to do with an education. A theologian is someone who knows God. The mystics, the ancient mystics, the ancient prophets, these are the theologians. Why? Because they know God. Eternal life is not the prayer we pray. Let me, I'm going to read this to you guys. And he says, this is eternal life that they, they know God. All right, it's John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they, who's they? Those who want eternal life. And this is eternal life that they, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay, according to John's gospel here, what's eternal life? The knowledge of God. This knowledge is not accumulating facts. This knowledge is intimate knowing. In other words, it's not just it, to see him. Watch this. The, the kingdom is in what? The holy what ghost, right? This is this is the scripture. The kingdom of God does not come in observation, but the kingdom's in you. The kingdom's in you, the kingdom's in the Holy Ghost. How is that even because the spirit of God is in all matter? He's in all. So the kingdom is in the Holy Spirit, who is in all things. But yet, here's the dilemma that Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John chapter three. Unless you're born again, you can't see it or enter into it. Why are we trying to see or enter into something that's inside of me already? How do I enter into something that's in me? Well, we might take a um, we might take a script off of the old playbook of the pericoretic circle dance of Father, Son, and Spirit as they mutually indwell and mutually interpenetrate the other without loss of their individual hypostasis, or they don't lose who they are as a unique person. So what we're looking at is that so to be born again, we have to we have to be born again to see the kingdom or enter into the kingdom. But this is what Jesus is telling us in John 17. He says that this is eternal life that you may know. The know, how do you know? It's intimacy. It's mutual interpenetrating knowledge. This interpenetrating knowledge is the same interpenetrating knowledge you have with a spouse. It is that when you, when the two become one, because they are entering into love, making love entangled with each other, interpenetrating each other, rather through the mouth or through, you know, they are one, they are in union, fusing together, participating with each other's life, shared breathing, these things that make romance so phenomenally powerful and even addictive if you're not careful. Why is it? Or, but yet some of us have such bad experience because what should have been beautiful in love was taken from you and forced upon you, but love doesn't force. Love is a participation. And when, and when it's not a dance, it's rape. It's the participation. It's, this is eternal life, love.
Listen, y'all, I'll be Southern for a minute, Alabama. Y'all, and this is eternal life that, that they know you. That means that there is a, there is a, this is the reason why God doesn't say, I'm going to save your brother, you like her, I'm going to do, that would be rape. God is not into raping his creation. He's asking for participation. So to know eternal life is when you interlock or you have engaged interpenetrating love. The, this is the canonic love of the Trinity. We are engaging in his love and he is pouring his love into us and we love him back because he loves us first. And this is the knowledge of God. And this knowledge of God is eternal life. There's so much fluff out there today. And I, I, I know I say things, guys, that people sometimes are like, oh, I don't know. Sad, sad. It's true, but it's sad. And it's sad because we've been blind so long. We've, we've taken the bait of Satan. We made God a stirred, distant, and unreachable. And see, Baxter Kruger would say it this way. We're all breathing Christological air. He's closer to, he's closer than, we've heard it say, he's closer than the breath you breathe. It's so true. We have to learn how to experience that. So what I'm learning and what I'm in the process of is something called centering prayer. Well, centering prayer is the first stage of true contemplative prayer. Um, I had been practicing learning how to contemplate a prayer. And that's when I caught a glimpse of that beatific vision. That's when my whole entire world was turned inside out. I saw him, guys. Maybe if it's like looking through a keel, I caught a glimpse. It changed, it put, it connected all the dots. It, it inverted the gospel, invert everything I learned that was true had been inverted. So it was distant. It inverted and become substance. And I found out that the kingdom is not with observation. It's in me. We're not trying to build political kingdoms and call it the kingdom of God. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that's within us. And it manifests within this earth as a new creation that looks like love. Not uniformity, but unity. The unity of what? The faith. The faith is what? The regla fadehi. It is the stability of our conversation. You remove the rule of our faith. You remove our conversation. The conversation has no stability, and it becomes a house built on sand. That when storms come, people fall. The ministries go down. Why? Because it was never built upon what was foundation. Foundation is the stability of our car and the red left today, the rule of our faith. And that means this, beloved, that everything comes out of the perichoretic circle death, that perichoresis, that perichoresis, peri coming from the word perimeter or circle. Uh, choresis comes from the word like a choreography or a um, kaleidoscope. It is, it is, it deals with something that is moving within turn of step. Think about maybe, I don't know, I'm not, maybe a waltz. I'm not sure. You know what I mean? Like there's dancing is like when you, let, and I'm not talking about getting down, twer just twerking and stuff. Like, do, 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 do. <laughs> Put your hands up in here. You know, I'm talking about real dancing is reciprocal. Re real dancing is reciprocal. Real dancing is like a conversation, a real conversation. Because it starts happening in such a way that it becomes the two literally becomes like one in the dance, the waltz or the whatever. So that's why the old, the ancient churches, the only way we can describe the Trinity is they are within a circle dance, an eternal circle dance of, of eternal bliss, of eternal ecstasy, 
of eternal joy. And listen, even the Presbyterians got this part right. When in their um, in the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, they posed the very first question, what is the chief end of man? And this is what they answered. The chief end of man is to glorify God, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's to know him, this eternal life. Not the per- What if you ever met somebody that didn't have a tongue? How do they repeat the sinner's prayer? Are they damned to hell because they don't have a tongue? <laughs> if we kind of do so with this craziness. I'm not saying there's not profound power in the confession of our faith. I'm saying you can confess till you're blue in the face and not know God. You can get baptized upside down, inside out. You can go down a wet center, go down a dry center, come up wet centers. Even sacramentology is, has to be anchored within the knowledge of God. You must, we have to know him. And to know him is to know who he is, to know who he is, the stability of our conversation, to have a stability of our conversation. God is over all. So think about it. Maybe think about it like a, I'm not trying to put limitations, but just try to think of this, of God being this giant light, I don't know, whatever, because he's spirit. But within him, probably right in the center of his being, because Jesus is in the bosom of his father, and he's the time slain from the father. So creation is within the bosom of the father. And so all things consist, exist, and have their being in him, Colossians chapter 1. So Ephesians 11, 3 would say, uh, 1, 3, I mean, said that all things are held together by the power of his word. And Colossians 1, Colossians 1 would say this. It would say that, um, lost my train of thought here. It said all things were created by him. All things were created for him. And all things consist and have their being in him. Again, in John 1. And as within the framework of time that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the place where the end of time and the beginning of time is consummated in that one moment. He summed up all things, Ephesians 1, all things both in heaven and in earth, space, time, and matter, summed up in him. So that now heaven and earth have been united in the cross. There is no separation. None. The only, I'm going to tell you this. The way we learn to become spiritual is learning how to become human. Don't forget that. There is no true spirituality. There is no true spirituality outside of being human. Jesus comes as a human. God created us in the beginning as a human. He is teaching us how to become a human. Even after we finish our course in this life, in this body, our bodies will be resurrected. And we will still be what? Human. We will be human. Sons and daughters of God who are human beings that are in the glory in the sun. Because from the time of the cross, in point of history, and in the reference of history, and in the, in the context of future, all things... Watch this. All things that have been created have been created in him. He puts it all to death. And the fathers would say that through his death, he tramples over down death. The apostle Paul will say he made a public spectacle of them. How? He 
mean, he led. He, what did he do to them? He he made a public spectacle. He made the he made them a laughing stock, triumphing over it all in his death. Not the resurrection. In his death, he puts death to death. In his resurrection, he brings forth a whole new creation. And now we read Second Corinthians five seventeen: If any man be in Christ, which is the King James version quote because that's what i memorized throughout the years back in my younger days if any man be in christ he or she is a new creation all things have passed away all things have become new it's actually what it says if any man be in christ we are part together we are together a part of the new creation same thing in galatians 4 i believe or, or galatians 2 verse 20 i believe Paul says, I am co-crucified. It's what it says in the Greek. I am co-crucified by curiousness. I have been co-crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I live in this flesh or this humanness, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I hope that if anything, you begin to see that the us and them illusion is a very, very strong lie of Satan. It is a it is an act of the ego. It's an act of pride, and it's taken on by many narcissistic personalities to create for themselves a throne or a platform to say, "We got it, bless God. I'm holier than you." We, you know, you know, all of you seen it. The woman who looks down her nose at you and scoffs at you and she's as ugly as sin, wearing a long blue jean dress or whatever. And we've all seen these people who think they're holier and they look down at everybody else's sinners because they're not part of their occult or their cult or their clique. And it is a cult. Pentecostal oneness is a cult. It is, it's, 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 it's not good. I'm not saying that God won't get, meet them there. He will. But beloved, if you, I'm going to tell you this much right here. Take this to the bank. If God doesn't have any problem meeting with Pentecostal oneness, he's not going to have any problem meeting with a Buddhist. You put, we put that in our religious pipe and smoke it all night long. It's the truth, whether we like it or not. This, this us and them, us and them. Well, they ain't saved yet. How do you know? Well, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Past, present, and future is one in Christ, omnipresence. So who are you saying is saved and who's not saved? You don't know their end. You don't know where they're at. You know, this is the same thing, Elijah. Only I'm left, God. Elijah's, God says, Elijah, get up from here, you silly prophet. I've got 3,000 that has a bow their knee to bow or kiss his image. You think you're all alone. You're not. God will never leave this earth without a faithful witness. And we're going to be surprised when we stand before God and we're going to find out there's a lot more people that made it in that didn't even know who Jesus was, but they loved him, but they just didn't know him. They had no idea who he was. Nobody told them. And our religious doctrinal servitudes would tell us, well, they go to hell then. <laughs> this is James and John. Remember, they were going to Samaria and, they, and the Samarians rejected them. And he said, Jesus, don't you want us to call fire down from heaven and, and burn their asses up just like Elijah did? Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. 
The Son of Man didn't come to destroy life. He come to save it. But yet we're trying to get Jesus to kill everybody. It doesn't, doesn't agree with our, with our political prophetic word. You don't agree with me? Then God's going to judge you and kill you. Dude, please. We need to starve these mongrels out. Just quit feeding them and, they, and they'll lose fuel. I don't know what else to say about it. But I will say this. All I'm telling you <laughs> is that for us to enter into eternal destruction, call it damnation, whatever you want to, it means that we have hardened our heart to the point, I believe, even after death, that we say, I don't want him. I have want nothing to do with him. And God will give God will give us what we want. But it's not because his mercy is how is his mercy everlasting, but yet his mercy ends after life. What, what is this stuff? Who told us that after we die in this earth it's over with, and you're either going to have who told us where is that in the Bible? Where's it? it's not in there, guys. This is the this is the garbage that we've inherited. And we think it's true. How in the world do I think that I would never do that to my child, but God doesn't have any problem doing it? Well, he's just. No, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. So if I have any form of goodness in me, it's a gift of him. So if I love my wife, I love my sons, I love my mother, I love my neighbor, if I do that, it's not a it's not a humanistic love. It's a love because God has gifted me to love in the way he loves. And to love the best we know how to is minute compared to the love of God. His love is a consuming fire. It burns there. People are fearful of it. His love is equality in his light. His light is the life of men. In him was life and the life was the light of men. John 1. So what does that mean, beloved? That means that the light comes into the dark, appears in the darkness. Those who don't want anything to do with it, they hate the light because they like to work within darkness, because they like to be secretive, deceptive, cryptic. They like to hide in the shadows. They like to undermine what other people are doing. They like to plot against the righteous. So yes, they hate the light. Because they know that if the light gets near them, then their deeds will be exposed. C.S. Lewis said that hell, the prisoners of hell are locked in from the inside out. They're prisoners of their own decision. They're prisoners of their own choice. God does not condemn anyone to any form of hell. And I'll tell you this much as well. If eternal life is to know God and we begin to know him in this earth, eternal life begins in this earth which tells me that eternal destruction is experienced in this earth, which tells me that whatever, we, we, whatever we're operating in now, we can experience heaven, quote unquote, now, we experience hell now. And whatever we live in, whatever we gravitate to, whatever we give ourselves to, will be the extent of that, I believe, when we pass from this life to the next. What direction are you on now? I believe it will help determine the direction that you're moving in eternity on this life. This is orthodox. There's no, there's no such thing as eternal conscious torment in, in, in the orthodox tradition. There is a belief that there is a everlasting, they, some believe there is an everlasting um, punishment in that sense or punitive um, 
punishment, but it's not, it's not torment. It is, it is a, it is a, it is men and women being given to their own devices and giving them what they think they want. It's not fry like bacon. And I'm going to, and we're all going to, we're all going to get to heaven one day in our eyes, but we're all going to, ha, 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 I feel so joyful. Look at Bob down there burning up, screaming in torment, ha. This is not the love of God. This is, this is satanic leaven that's infiltrated the church. You know what? I don't know what to do it sometimes, but I know what I will do. I'm going to keep pushing back against it. And I know I make enemies doing this, but, um, if there's any form of me that has a prophetic nature in my life, and I've had people call me many things from prophet to other things, I'm not telling you I am a prophet. I'm saying if there's any prophetic nature in me whatsoever, I cannot help but push back against this mess. Um, I want to say this one more thing and maybe we'll open it up. Maybe somebody will say something, but um yeah, I don't want to say the wrong person, but I think I think I'm almost positive. I'm I'm 97, 98% positive. It was TF Torrance, the great Scottish theologian, the modern day Athanasius who passed away. Um, they asked him what would be the, what would be the final thing he would want to leave with his students, his disciples, those who sat under him, learned all these epic truths about doctrine and theology and relationship and trinity. And the last thing I understand that he said to his students, this is what he said. This is what he wanted them to know. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And he said, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. It's the gospel. We're going to open it up. It's any dialogue or discussion. I'm, I poured my heart out to you guys tonight. And I thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I will say, um, I will say everything I do, guys, is I want to open up for dialogue discussion before anybody starts dropping off. If, um, ask the Lord um, about everything we do here is, is, is absolutely the gospel's free. But I do want you to ask the Lord about sowing in, sowing a seed tonight, or I hate to even call it sowing a seed, to give of your natural money to the spiritual, um, the spiritual manna. Um, you don't buy it, you don't trade for it, but we have to learn how to be reciprocal um, and learning how to do life together. So I'm asking you, let the Lord talk to you, deal with your heart. There are some pressing things. I won't get into any of that stuff, and I won't, I won't stay on this long, but I'm asking you to talk to the Lord and let God talk to you about sowing um, a special seed a spe or giving a special gift tonight um, to just to help alleviate some of the natural burdens that I have to deal with. And so I, I put that in your hands. It's between you and God. And I, I would pray that those of you who do have to give, you'll ask God and, and let God talk to you because I, I do believe you'll be giving to, Good soil, good ground, and I do believe with all my heart, according to Luke 6, 38, God will bless you. Give, it shall be given. Um, we have to learn how to be reciprocal the best we can.
to share with each other what we have to share. And um, and um, and I, I appreciate your time. You've shared that much. You've given me your ears, and you've allowed me to talk to you. And I'm so thankful for that. But if it's touched your heart, it's blessed you. You sense, or you, or truth is resonating in your, even if you don't get it all, or you do get it, or whether you do or not, but you sense the frequency that I'm talking about something true, something pure, something that's holy. And let God talk to you. And um, and, and so, so into, so into what we're doing. And, and I, I appreciate it. Amen. I want to open it up now. And I'll, I'll put that in the comment box as well. That way you guys can um, know how to, if you decide to. And um, I would love to hear some responses. I'll don't speak at once. Well, I have something, Shane, if you don't mind. Okay. I joined in late. Sorry about that. I have two boys that I have to put in. They just came home from training. So I put something. I don't know if you saw it. Um, when you were talking about eternal life, the gift of eternal life comes to those who believe in Jesus, right? Who himself yeah, is a resurrection and a life, right? Yes, so, it, it begins. It begins there. Sorry. It begins in belief. It continues through knowing. So, yeah. Right. So, so it's so important. It's important that we learn how to transition from belief to knowledge because belief, for example, belief belief is where faith comes in. Um, and and that's that's paramount. It's fundamental. It's foundational for us as believers. Um, so we have to have faith to believe. But there comes a place of knowing or abiding. This is so it has to come beyond a place of just believing something to be true. But you go into knowing something's true because you have had intimate relationship with the truth. Yes. And the focus of eternal life is not on our future, but the current standing in our Christ right now. Yes. Because it is the Holy Spirit. Who leads you into the fellowship, right? Right. So you are, so, okay. I know I, I'm trying to understand everything that you're saying. Um, so the fellowship in a relationship with the Holy Spirit will teach you. you so when we have faith, Faith is not by sight. Faith is believing in something which is not seen, but you believe it is so. And I can testify for that because I've seen what God has done in my life. By faith, because faith is to be obeyed. Yes. So. That's true. Uh, yes, faith, 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 faith calls for action. Or obedience. This is why um, we see Acts chapter two, men of Israel, what must we do to be saved? Peter preaches, what must we do to be saved? Um, Metaniah, or what we call repentance, baptism. And then we are added to the church in sense of spiritual family and relationship. Um, so that this is the obedience of faith. Uh, so we, 
faith always is a cry or call to action, but but this is also Trinitarian because faith alone doesn't do much of anything other than get us through the gate. So this is when Paul would say in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, he says. Um, now he says, what, what will continue to abide? So he says, if you could prophesy, prophecy, um, we'll prophesy for now. But he says, um, but when that's perfect come, we don't need to prophesy no more. There's knowledge. Knowledge is, um, will be completed at one time. But he said, what will remain is faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these is love or agape. So faith, hope, and love. Is, this is Trinitarian. It's a Trinitarian thread. And hope, true hope, is the missing ingredient for most of us to translate what we know to be true to resting and abiding within the place of love. Hope is the, hope is the actual time ingredient of all of faith and love to so that we can be complete in him, become one in him. Because when we come into the faith, oftentimes what we can do is we have faith and the Lord meets us where we're at and we get a glimpse, we'll get an idea and we put our faith and trust, but yet we're working out. And I think this is what Paul meant when he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying work out your own salvation, do whatever you want to, if you think it's right, rather not. He's saying we're all products of what we have come through, who we are today is because of what we walked through in our past and what we've experienced, what we lived through. All these things um, are tantamount in the way we perceive life. So working out our salvation is beginning to work through all of the different areas of what life is handed to us so that we keep the faith that we can continue to endure in hope so that love can be perfected in us. And the way we know love is completely perfected in us ultimately is that it casts out all fear. So the is just to, just to key in here, if we recognize that if we have anxiety about anything, I, and we all do, I know I do still, I still have to deal with all of this stuff, just like everybody else. And we're on a process, but that, but what that tells me is that, I have not yet been made perfect in love. So I'm still on this journey of, of, so we keep the faith. We have to continue in hope and we persevere in love. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, but what I want to add to that as well is Shane love the word love, hmm. you know, in the world we live in today, you know, even believers love what is love? Because God loved us unconditionally. When you look at the earth, he loved us so much that he created everything on this planet. Then he created man. What is true love? And I believe, I believe, well, I had an experience already, but love, many of us, don't really love each other. God loved us unconditionally. So what is love in a true believer when we come together? Can I say I love you? Yes. You know why I can say I can truly love you? But it took me a long time to know what the love of God is if I didn't have an experience with him. Exactly. So today, before I didn't love everyone, no. I, I, I read the Bible, but today I can say I love you and I love everyone that I meet. A true love, because you know what? He's coming back 
for that thing called love because we can do everything else in the bible we can be we can prophesy we can teach we can read we can do whatever but if you lack love is he going to take us with him no no so my my question is that not a question really a statement love can we really say we love each other because Christ loved us unconditionally. We need to love ourselves in order to love others. And I'm stuck with this because today believers or Christians, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to just speak the truth. Today I see so many are reading the word and praying and teaching and doing, you know, doing so much for the Lord. But yet, the love that it really, really, mm, you don't know how much because I keep crying out to God about this because I do not pray for families only. I pray for, for this nation because I love people. I have a heart for people. Whether they're good or bad, that's up to God to make a decision. But I'm saying the word love. How can we say we love God, but yet we cannot love our neighbors. We can't even say good morning, even if we know that neighbor doesn't like us for some reason. How can we not? You know, that right, that right. Really- I, I would say this here, though. Um, I think that what, what has happened in many cases that we've have misidentified love with kindness or or um, um, having the, just being neighborly, you know. So, you know, when we see people that um, that we typically like, oh, I don't have no, I don't want no time with them, but then we start learning how to say, Hey, how are you? Have a good morning. And so we're, we, but is that really showing love? Because I don't think it really is because when Jesus begins to identify no greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for a friend, what we're looking at here is a paradigm shift. Um, now we don't need to get overwhelmed with this because the temptation could be to look at everybody that has a problem or situation and try to say, Oh God, I'm overwhelmed. I can't fix it. You're not called to this is what I talked about at the beginning of the broadcast is the, uh, the idea of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man had everything he ever needed or ever wanted. Lazarus didn't have a, uh, he didn't have a, a pot to pee. And I know that's probably not good language, right? but the, he was laid at the rich man's gate and the rich man cut off all of his, um, if he had any compassion, he cut it all off. He ignored this dude as if he had no idea he was there, but he was aware because he knew his name. So in hell, when there's this flip side or this afterlife um, Jewish idiom playing out right here, the chasm between the rich man and Lazarus is created through the chasm that the rich man created in the, in the land of the living. So when he, when he separated himself from the, the needs of the one sat in front of his gate, he was creating a chasm in eternity that was going to keep him from the blessing that Lazarus would ultimately receive. So what in this actual story, we don't see anything about faith. We don't see anything about praying a prayer. We don't see all what we see is how did we treat the person in need? Not everybody in need because that would consume us. We couldn't, but those that are in our gates, those that are in need in our guests, those who uh, that have 
need of of what's necessary for their life and they're in your gate but our western um tradition has taught us well but ask god let them get out work or do this do that yeah there's all kinds of stuff going on this isn't the scripture this isn't biblical because we don't know the position of that person or what they walk through or why they're in the situation they're in so for me the love of God is the love that can look in light of any certain person's situation. If they've wronged me, if they've loved me, if they've hated me, if they've liked me, if they've robbed me, if they've given to me, I have to see Christ in them. Each and every single one of them, Jew, Gentile, bond, free, male, female, barbarian, Scythian, or atheist, or Mormon or Jehovah Witness or Muslim. I have to see that the Holy Spirit in all things is in them. And we are asked to participate with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to bring a word of life to them so that the lights can begin to work. It changes evangelism for one thing. Instead of trying to get people to get God to come to them, we tell them God is in them and ask them, say, I want you to pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to me, or Father, as Paul would say, reveal your son to me, because this is what's going on here. When we look in the book of Acts, when um, when Paul is breathing out, or Saul of Tarsus, before he's Paul, is breathing out threats, persecuting the Lord's church, having people drugged to jail, and even put to death, from my understanding, that on the road of Damascus, he has an encounter, and that encounter revolutionizes his life. And the voice says this, Saul, Saul, why do you kick amongst the goads? Yeah, I think that's a lot. What we, what are we doing? We're kicking against the goads trying to get something done. And he says, stop it. Stop it. You know, Saul didn't argue. He said, who are you, Lord? You know, what do you want me to do? I once was blind, but now I'm seeing Sometimes, listen, sometimes it takes us becoming blind in order for us to truly see. This is hey, what Shane, let me let me throw something in on that there. Ahead, because, you know, I just I really think that the, you know, we me, I can't speak for we, but I know myself that coming out of this deconstruction um, or I should say coming coming from a place of reconstruction. Let me say yeah. that. And that um, with what Holy Spirit is doing for myself and what it appears to be happening for those that I lean into is that Holy Spirit, you think about when Jesus got into the boat and I think of the story where the guy was in um, the tombs, um, he was chained and fettered and the demoniac, it's called the demoniac story. I've often wondered when Jesus in that story, it says that he was heading in one direction, but then he came and he went to that area. How did he know to go to that area? Well, we know the scripture that says that he did nothing unless the father directed him yes. because that guy was one of, if not one of the greatest that was demon possessed that I've read so far in the word of God. So I've pondered that and wondered, well, how in the world did Christ know to go there? And it, it had to be the whole uh, understanding of that. He did only what the father directed him to do. But when you look at that from a lens of the perichoresis, uh, the Holy Spirit, and so the direction came from the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening, I feel like, is that we talk about love, and I can tell you that the different levels and different um, definitions of love 
all play into this. And I believe that it comes from an injection from the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. And I say that because I had that happen one time. I'm going to share a quick story. Um, I was in a service, a congregational service at one time. And at this time, we had um, a large gathering and um, we did food every Saturday night and probably were, you know, well into 100 plus people there. And so, you know, after doing this every Saturday night for over a year and, you know, you know, the, the thing about 10 percent of the people do the work you got uh, that's in the body of Christ. And so, you know, moving into the 11th month mark, you know, some of us were very tired of the cleanup after this uh, food gallop because it was a huge uh, spread. Um, it was just really great. And I remember this particular night, I was so frustrated, so angry. I could hear the music uh, from the minstrels playing, uh, you know, in the other area where we all wanted to be. And I'm just complaining like you would not believe. I mean, I'm just going at it, probably saying a few cuss words. Not just you, Sandy. Not you. You know, I wasn't saying them out loud, but it didn't matter. They were in my heart. And so I'm just complaining all, you know, nonetheless. And so I get in there to the to the uh, fellowship hall. And as I go to take a seat, all of a sudden, you know, the atmosphere shifts. I'm trying to focus. I can't focus. I'm so angry. I've worked myself up into this stupor, you know, and I'm about to leave and go outside and just walk around for a little bit. And somebody comes and wants me to come up front. And I'm like, I don't want to go up front. My gosh, you know, you want me to pray for somebody. I'm in no posture of the heart to pray. And all of a sudden, there's two chairs at the front of the congregation at the fellowship hall, and I get put in one of these chairs. And all of a sudden, people began to line up, and um, they began to speak over me and my husband. And you want to know about feeling as low as, I can't even tell you, a grain of sand. You know, I'm bawling my eyes out. I mean, totally bawling my eyes out. They think I'm bawling my eyes out because they're giving us words of confirmation. <laughs> and I'm in guilt and shame about wanting to, you know, chop these people up in little pieces and put the food down their throat. You know, <laughs> it was so funny. All of a sudden, it wasn't funny at the time, but now I can <laughs> laugh about it because there was a great lesson taught. So as I sit in this chair and everyone from the oldest to the youngest of children came up and they just, you know, knelt down and, and began to speak a word. I looked up to my right and I don't see things very often. And, you know, my skill set and gift sets is a little bit different. And I look up to my right. And as I look up to my right, I see what looks like this massive, one of the biggest syringes, a needle I've ever seen in my life, ever, ever, ever seen in my life is massive. And it looks like, you know, when you draw uh, liquid into a syringe and then, you know, you've got it ready to, uh, you know, disperse that liquid, all of a sudden, every time someone would come up and either kneel down or stand behind us or gather around us, it was like that syringe and it was like liquid love. And so to talk about that word of love, it, I really believe that it is a posture of the heart that has to come from the Holy Spirit. Even with children and marriages, covenants, and even in relationship to the Trinity, I think that it comes from a desire of, uh, you know, we used to say, well, you got to want it. I'm not so sure about that because I go back to the Gadarene, the demoniac, and I don't 
see anywhere that gives us an indication that he wanted to be delivered of those demons. But with that said, we don't know the heart of the people. The scripture even talks about that, that we don't even know our own heart. And so that's where we really have to have that close relationship with the Holy Spirit and know the voice of Trinity because, you know, as we walk with the Trinity and we learn of them and what they've done, I believe that that injection comes in greater measures. And um, I know it has for me. And so I think that we're all on this journey. And as much as I would love to tell you that I love my husband 27 years later, you know, that I loved him then as much as I do now is a lie. I would love to tell you that when I first started walking with Christ, that I love Christ as much then as I do now. And that's a ball face lie. And so it's a, it's a growing participation relationship that the Trinity is wanting from us. And if that's something that is on our hearts for those that have that desire, I absolutely believe that they will meet that desire. So I just wanted to share that. Amen. Amen. Um, that's great. I wanted to um, also point one more time what Susie said about experience. It's really important because we wink at that a lot because in our fundamental circles, we would say, well, bless God, your experience can lead you astray. But, you know, yeah, people have been led astray by experiences. Sure. But not a real experience. And there, you and you know the difference. You, you at least you should you will when you have a real one anyway. He was just nobody ever going to talk you out of it. But Paul was Paul Saul was was devoted and when he had his experience on on damascus who are you lord he he changed him and then what we read in galatians is that god paul writes concern is when god was pleased when it pleased the father to reveal a son in me not to me not through me not not to me not not um coming at me or whatever he revealed a son in me so there's what what does that mean well the son had to be in him for the son to be revealed to him that means that he sustains all things by the power of his word like we were talking about a little while ago and i would say this shane as well about um the gardenerines um the the demoniac um we have to we have to bear in mind a couple things and i think that one of the things we need to bear in mind is this is that there's been teachings circulating the church since um, since I've been around in ministry, and it would say something like this: Jesus is divine, but in his humanity, he laid aside his divinity in I've order in order to show us what it's like to be a man completely yielded to the Holy Spirit to set the paradigm of example. That's that you know. I, there's no other way to say, but that is absolute Gnostic heresy. Mm-hmm. you can't the moment you do that you have a son on the cross a father who turns separation. Back into separation you bring that separation back into exactly. and that's what we've been programmed for so long i mean and i you know i'm not going to blame the the men and women of god i think they've done the best they could just like we all have to we're all on a journey we're all on a journey that's right but it brings that separation and the thing about it is is we've got to come from that part uh from that lens of that there is no separation, that he, Christ, the Trinity comes into our mess. You know, when I started listening to Paul Young and Baxter Kruger, what got it for me was the cave scene in the shack. If you've watched that movie, and I never read the book. I have. I still haven't read the book. I got it on audio book. So I listened to the book. So that's kind of cheating. I, collect I, I love it. it. I, co- I collect the uh, books every time I come across them in thrift stores because it is a powerful 
experience. But if you've not seen it or read that section where um, the, the gentleman is in the cave and wisdom, and I don't want to tell you what happens because if you've not seen it, you, um, but there's a, there's a, there's a moment in the cave and um, wisdom. Yes. Uh, Sophia. This, yep. Speaks to this gentleman and it talks about choosing of your children. And I think that even when it comes to, and this is probably fixing the, I don't know everybody that's on this call and by no means am I trying to offend any of anybody's uh, belief system, but a burning hell, I'm just not real sure of anymore. It's not biblical. And, um, yeah, I'm asking, you know, the Trinity to help walk me through and take away things that I've misinterpreted or either collected as lent. Because if we look at it from what Shane said tonight, and I know that he said so much that it's almost like overwhelming to try to process. He needs to learn to take a, a break and dissect it into segments for some of us who are a little bit, you know, slower to grasp but all this. I will say that that entire topic, though, Shani, was one topic. So that's what I've been doing. I I've know. Been, I've been breaking down. I've been breaking you. down. I've been breaking down just this one idea uh, that is overall, through all, and in all. So that's what we got the, re the replay will be on the um on the Facebook it's though. Beautiful. I and I realized that and so I don't want anybody to feel intimidated because Shaney makes a really good point here. She really does. Now listen, Shaney's my sister. Um, she's the only woman that can yell at me and get away with it without without me getting offended because and she has. She's seen me at my worst. And I'm not getting into that tonight, maybe another night, but she I've she's yelled at me and I took it like a champ, I think, because I saw that she did it in love and, and she was very much concerned about my situation. So let's, let me say that what I, I, I respect this woman. I believe in this woman. She's my friend and she's been, I've got very few. I hate to say that. I hope I can make more really, really good friends with all of you, but I've got a few friends and um, Shaney's one of them. I'm not going to start naming off, but I will go ahead and say that Linda Raymond's been a true friend of me. John Paul has been a true friend of me. These are people that I know. And I told Linda that I can count on one hand people that I believe are true friends. I just say that to say that anyway, that y'all, when she talks, I want y'all to hear her like you would hear me because she's the real deal. Really is. Well, I appreciate that, Shane. And, and again, I think some of that is, uh, you know, Jonathan and David in the Old Testament, um, there's scripture that says about when I interpret it as a knitting together, you had Saul's son who built a relationship with David, which pretty much is, you know, kind of like he went against his father. And there's a knitting together that happened between Saul and I'm sorry, with David and Jonathan. Um, and I think that the Holy Spirit, again, does that. He knits people together and, uh, you know, for times and seasons and sometimes for lifetimes. So I, I appreciate what you had said uh, about that. But there's a part in that movie in the book that I want to get back to that talks about as a as a parent and or uh, say a loved one. And you had to choose, uh, yeah. you know, between you know, two to three of your loved ones to send them to hell, you know, and that changed my whole scope. When I saw that, I didn't know anything about Paul Young or Baxter Kruger or Athanasius or any of these things, but whoever wrote that movie, I knew I needed to research out and find out who it was. Well, come to find out Paul Young was not even involved necessarily with uh, any of the rights to the movie. That's a whole story within itself. It's a beautiful story. But they did good um, staying true to the book, from what I can tell. Yeah, they they did. I think they did because there they, was a part. There's stuff left out, 
if anything, because to, you know, to get it all into one movie. But it right. seems to me that they stay even. Listen, Shane, when this movie blows me away now because I saw the movie first. I remember the part where uh, Mac is going to the house and the Holy Spirit and Papa's dancing in a circle. I'm like, give me a break. I didn't get it. <laughs> I'm so blind. They were dancing. This is Perry Caris. This is beautiful. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Shane. Yeah, no, it is. It's a beautiful movie. Uh, it's a great experience if you've not seen it. I highly, highly um, recommend it. Um, but it just talks in there. It really opened my mind when I needed to find out who um, had written that. And then going on that journey, again, feeling, you know, now looking back, knowing it was truly Holy Spirit that was leading me down that. And so it's just given me a different perspective that I just real, it's really hard for me when I hear people saying, you got to come to the altar. And it's really hard for me to hear people say, well, you know, you're just a sinner saved by grace. And it's really hard for me now to hear people, you know, quote a scripture, you know, about accept, believe and acknowledge the ABCs that I was taught to order to come into relationship with Christ. I do know what the word says in regards to that we are to believe um, uh, in regards to Christ. But I think that what we've done, what I have done, is I've taken certain things at a surface level and not gone into the layers deep. I mean, you can hear Shane. He's gone into the, Shane has a uh, desire. He, he's, he, his DNA, his spiritual DNA is of, of the making that he, he's fulfilled greatly, and this is by Trinity. They created him this way, that he is fulfilled greatly by going into the deep things of, of the word and, and research, and that's beautiful. Most of us, for most of our life, have taken things, you know, at a, at a surface, maybe one or two layers and not gone deeper. And so I know for me, where I'm at is I'm just really wanting to go deeper. It's not because I want to have prosperity with wealth or, um, you know, the what I would call the negative side of that, uh, you know, glamour and fame and all this. Right. It's it's him. It's them and the presence that they bring and so many benefits that I would call secondary, but they're really not. It's all kind of equitable comes from that out of that relationship. It's just an amazing uh, new lens that I have that I had not had before when I'm really truly wanting to go into the deeper things, but not out of a religious context from, from the definitions that we've had handed down over the years without going into you know, the Greek and the Hebrew and looking back at Athanasius, looking back at those people who truly were there during that time. You know, when you listen to Baxter Kruger and you hear him talk about the perceptions and Brad Jersak about the perceptions, you know, of the penal type of God that we have, because those books were written by lawyers. But then you look at John the Beloved and, and you read from his eye lens of how he writes about Christ. It's two totally different um, ways of perceiving what takes, you know, what comes out of that relationship. And so I'm telling you, it's, it's an amazing um, revolution of revelation that I truly believe is coming down right now. It's been here, but I think that there is eras of time that it seems like it's catching on more and more 
as I just the Holy Spirit will bring certain people that I don't even know and I'll hear the sound and then I'll look into them and come to find out Johnny Cash had books of Athanasius in his home. And when Paul Young went there on a trip, you know, he was invited to come and speak about the shack and he goes for a tour and his eyes focus on this, you know, like a tin bookshelf behind glass. And there's, you know, like 10 volumes of these Athanasius and um, uh, uh, McMurray, I think, and all these other people who, who were just amazingly understanding about the Trinity and Paul Young talks about he couldn't take his eyes off of it because Johnny Cash and his wife was knowledgeable of this. And yes. so it's just beautiful. That's, that's, that's amazing. Charlie Daniels is another one. Um, he, the last end of his life, he went to church, many different churches, teaching and preaching his testimony. And basically his message was simple. And it was it was Jesus loves me. It was mm-hmm. because his whole entire upbringing was Christian, but it pushed him away because it was all about the transactional God. I have yes. to do this to get this. If I can do this just right, then God, and he, and he couldn't do it. So he went the, the direction he went. Um, mm-hmm. and, but near the end of his life, he kept wrestling with his questions. And I was me and Lisa was listening to his testimony the other day. It's phenomenal. Um, one of these classes we're going to deal with, uh, we're going to go through the scriptures on hell. We're, we're going to break this down because it needs to be, looked at or needs to be re-looked at um i'm going to give you guys a couple points to chew on to think about this number one his coming his return there is two different types of coming we're going to find specifically when you read the gospels there's the coming of the son of man and there's his final appearing the coming of the son of man is in the olivet discourse uh, in luke luke 21 matthew 24 mark 13 the coming of the son of man is dealing with his the the economy of god to bring forth justice in the earth. We'll just leave it at that. That's, that's the coming of the son of man. That's not his final return or the final returning of the Lord is not a coming from closing the gap of distance. It's the word appearing. Appearing is something that happens within the perspective of the one who has the, the, the beatific vision. So his his consummation, what we would call his second coming, which is a bad term, it's not accurate, but his final appearing is because his bride has been unveiled. Mm-hmm. What that means is when the veil is coming off the bride, our sight, our vision is to see him. To see him perfectly is to be exactly like him, not to be him, but to be so much like him. We become the absolute faithful witness of who he is to the nations. So for the nations to see him fully is for us to be unveiled as his bride, but as his bride to be unveiled fully is to be able to see him. So it's much more about blindness. The illusion of alienation and separation has to come down in order for that to happen. And when it comes to hell, there are so many different passages of scripture that deal with this in a completely, totally different way than what we've been taught. We have, we have been force-fed Dante's Inferno of this eternal conscious torment, all of these type of things. I put in the, in the comment box over here uh, some recommended reading on the subject. The Great Divorce is, is, a, story, is, a, is a parabolic story by C.S. Lewis, kind of like something he would write about the Chronicles of Narnia. But this is about hell. And I think he does a fantastic, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it gives us 
an understanding that it's not the way we've been taught. Number one. Second thing is that there's only one person who has the power of death. His name's Jesus. He has the keys of death and hell. Um, so even the underworld is under the authority and lordship of Jesus. So the underworld is filled with his presence. Hell is filled with the presence of God. Holy Spirit's in all through all and overall. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he's in all things, even hell. That doesn't mean there's not a hell, but hell or this judgment of, of, of torment is something that is in the depths of our, our brokenness or who we are outside of Christ. It's us trying to continue to distance ourselves from him. We can't go anywhere where he's not. So David makes that clear. Where can I go where you're not? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I descend into hell, you're there. I can't get away from you. Um, David said, I can't get away from you. So David's running because he's he's trying to hide like Adam and Eve because of what he's done. But he's like, I can't get away from you. You can't. Can't outrun them. So the other thing I want to show is that when it comes to hell, we have a word called Gehenna, Hades, in Hebrew, Sheol. And then we have what we would call the lake of fire. Ultimately, all of hell, Hades or the underworld, will be tossed into this lake of fire. The lake of fire is not a place of eternal conscious damnation. The lake of fire is the fire of God's bosom. All things are in him, not separate from him. So therefore, we will all pass through this fire. It begins now. It will continue. So it is the purification of everything that's not like him. Salvation is of the Lord, but the fire of God purifies us. So. We'll take um, Gehenna. When we talk about Gehenna and this everlasting, the, the smoke of their torment will rise up forever and ever. Well, the first thing you have to really begin to examine is that the Greek here is Aeon, Aeonios, or age of ages, or the age of the universe. So it's it's not eternity. It's not, it's not the word for eternity. It's not the word for everlasting. It's the word for ages. So the, big difference right there. You're not going to find the word eternal linked to hell anywhere in the scriptures it's not there i've done i've looked trust me I've, I've done my homework what you will find however is that the actual judgment is the eternal aspect of it not the torment or the pain or the suffering of it so it is an eternal decree this is this is what i've set in motion this is the way it is so you have a choice, even if it's not much. It's not that God is condemning. He said, this is the way I've set it up. It's an eternal decree, and I won't go back on it. So we all pass through the fire so that we can be purified. Our God is a consuming fire. Paul says we will all pass through the fire, and whatever's wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. What fire, Paul? I th most likely it's the same fire that John's talking about in Revelation. We'll all go through that fire. Um, so whatever the second death is, is, is not a place of separation from God. It would rather be a place of non-existence. This is orthodox. This is the ancient faith. Um, this is what Shaney's referring to with Athanasius um, um, and then all the others, first four centuries, as they hammered the stuff out. And so we, we, we can go through that in another maybe a couple, two or three months if you guys want to. The other thing I want to say to what Shaney's saying is um, 
in in um in maybe weaving or merging together what Susie was talking about, what Shani's talking about is the idea of 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 believing and experience. Um, because uh, Susie's got a point when she talks about I know the love of she says, I know the love of God because I have experienced him. Like, you know, the argument or the pushback on that from some will be, well, your experience, I don't care about your experience, the word of God, the word of God, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible's not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. That's he's the eternal logos that was in the beginning with the theos, pros with the logos, pros theos is theology. Theo logos is, is, is the son and the, and the, and, and, and is the, is the revelation of the son of God. So I want to say that. And the other, the other thing I'd want to say concerning what Shane was talking about, the, um, about how did Jesus know to go there? Well, you know, he did it again when he went to the, when he went to the woman at the well, he went to Samaria for that one woman who becomes St. Fatini, equal to the apostles, according to the Orthodox tradition. She was an apostle of God sent to Samaria. She turned it upside down. Nero had her, had her thrown into a well because he didn't want to hear her no more. And even there, she entered into a place that was not bound by the dark pit of the well. And people were getting saved and healed and delivered. And from, from tradition, they say that Nero, the most wicked man alive that we know about, his daughter got converted because of this woman singing out of the well. But Jesus had to go there. How does he know these things? Well, let me ask you this question. When Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she is impregnated with the word, the logos of God. And she's not pregnant, but she's probably not showing yet. Okay. But Elizabeth is showing and she's the one who's carrying John the Baptist. When Mary gets close to Elizabeth, the embryonic stage of Jesus baptizes the baby in her womb with the Holy Ghost. Well, how can an embryonic, you know, a baby that it has a heartbeat, but it's in it's in its very, very it's it's in the early stages of the first trimester. It's not at a place, the baby itself is not at a place to reason, think, and to even be aware of what's going on on the outside world. This is where you understand in theology, this is why we cannot separate, we cannot say faithfully, and we're going to get into all kinds of trouble big time. If we try to say Jesus sets aside who he is as God in order to show us what it's like to be a man, because that separates all things, that separates him from his divinity, and you can't do that. The fathers understood this. This is what we call hypostatic union. The moment that the Son of God is, is, is in the womb becoming a human, the humanness of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus is ontologically one. That means they cannot be split apart or separated. They become ontologically one. So that would tell you then, if the economic purpose of the Son of God in the Trinity is to sustain all creation by the power of his word, what happens to creation when he becomes a man? Does he stop being the Son of God to become the Son of Man? No. He's equally the son of God and the son of man. So therefore, even though he's in the womb of a virgin becoming a human, he is still omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient and immutable.
meaning he's fully aware of every situation. He's in all place and all time, understanding he was already slain from the foundation of the world, and now he's within the scope of time as we are seeing it. So nothing changes with him as the son of God. What changes is that he becomes human. So he's 100% fully man, fully God. But as a baby forming in that womb, he's fully aware of everything, just as he was when he wasn't being a human. So that way, as God, he can say, hmm, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. He could tell the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen my father. He could say concerning the Holy Spirit, you know who he is because he's with you and he shall soon be in you. So there's this recognition here and he is in you. So there's this understanding then or recognition that Jesus in his incarnation, this is the, this is Orthodox theology right here, guys. He has two natures and two wills. He at all times has the nature of, of the divine or the nature of God, and he has the nature of a human. He has the will of God and the will of a human. They exist, coexist within the one person. The Son of God becomes the perfect representation of who the Father is in bodily form, so that at all times, the human body of Jesus contained within it the entire Godhead in bodily form. So to see Jesus is to see the son of God in the perichoretic dance that within Jesus is the fullness of father, son, and Holy spirit. So yes, he was a human. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He, uh, Brad Jersak, not Brad Jersak, but another one of the guys, Robert Kirk would say it even much more. I don't, you know, we're in a small, we're in a tight knit group tonight, but I'll go ahead and say it just like any man. He would, he would wake up with morning wood. He was a human. But he didn't give to sin. But as a human, he is also God. So he is, he understands, he knows the entire full human condition. He's experienced every single bit of it. But he's still God. And that means he's still infinitely aware, infinitely powerful, and infinitely present. And he's still immutable. Does that make sense? Perfect. So he never stopped being God when he was a man. This is why we can see the human will of God or the humanness of God in one sense that he could be asleep in a boat because he's tired, because he's a man. But his disciples are afraid and they wake him up and he will rebuke the storm and, uh, and it will obey his voice because he's God. This is why we cannot contribute the miracles of Jesus to what it looks like for a human yielded or submitted to the Holy Spirit. The, the problem with that is that when Jesus is talking to the people and his disciples, he said, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe I am who I say I am because of what I tell you, then believe me for the work's sake. In other words, believe me because of what I do, because what I do are acts of God. That's why they're called signs, semion. Semion is signs. It is miracles. It is it's wonders. Why? Because it is showing them that only God has opened the eyes of the blind. Only God can work such miracles. And then only God can forgive sin. Only God can walk on water. I don't believe Peter walked on water. You know, I know we like to say, well, we like to say, well, if Peter can walk on water, I can't do it. Well, only if he tells you to come. 
Because when Peter stepped out of the fellowship to walk towards him on the water, he wasn't walking on his own faith. He was walking on the preceding word that come out of the mouth of the Son of God, who is the word. See, this is this is where obedience comes in right here, guys. So, yeah, and that's that's the listening part too. Yeah, having the relationship. Exactly. You know, but but at that time, you know, Peter wasn't full of faith in a sense. I, you know, I've often wondered, was he just like in the moment? You know, exactly. And you know, maybe he just wanted to. And I'm not saying this is true or anything. I'm just saying, what if he was just in that moment? Well, I'll show you. I'm gonna fall. I'm gonna fall right to the the bottom of this ocean. You know, I don't know. Just kind of. Well, I, I think that he. He. I think that we have to simplify faith. Yes. Um, first of all, faith is a person, but when it comes to faith being something other than a noun and being a verb, faith is trust. It's trust. It's, it just means to trust him. It doesn't it's mean relational. That, it's Shane. It's relational. You don't trust people unless you have a relationship with them. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yes, it is relate. It's all relational. It's not transactional. Now, here's something to chew on. Um, there, I'm trying to remember the word. Um, I, I wrote it down in my notes. So I'm not gonna look for it right now. But think about it like this: if in in, in the, it's called deductionism. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Deductionism in the scientific arena is what they do, regardless of what it is. Is is they break down every single part, dissect it to, to understand it. Well, they can't do this. This is where God transcends science because God is defined as in by the by the ancients as simple. Simple doesn't mean simple like unintelligent. He's not like Forrest Gump simple. He's not saying me and Jesus like peas and carrots. You know, that's not what I mean by simple. But what I'm saying is that he's simple that he doesn't have parts and extremities like we do. So he's that's the simplicity. So we, we, I think it's really important that we get that though, because um, if Jesus, what was I, what was I, what did I say before I said that about being simple? I was, I was responding to you, Shani, but I've lost the thought. How about the demoniac and the woman you had said about? Yeah, but food. after that, just, just now, what I said, just um, what I was. Peter and faith. We were talking about Peter and faith. Oh yeah, faith. So. Um, so faith is a person, but it's trust. Um, it's relational. And then um, I started talking about God being simple for some reason, but oh, science. It's 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 deductionism. You this is this is what I was trying to say. Deductionism is to strip everything down to see how every part works, but um, faith is not deductionism, faith is trust in him or trust it's just it's just to believe him at his word so an ancient if you told if 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 you gave an ancient person a chair to sit in or just gave them the chair and say explain this chair i want you to tell me i want you to tell me the ins and outs of this chair the Greek mind would dissect it, take it to pieces, and look at how it's built and what structure. And, and, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying it's fully incomplete. The Hebraic mind, the, the Jewish mind, would not take the chair apart. They would just sit in it. And the difference is in a place of assurance to 
of, of, of trust, abiding love, abiding hope, abiding faith, resting within it, while the Greek mind would want to take it to part to try to figure out how is it holding me up instead of just trusting it will hold me up and resting in it. So I think that's a lot about mystery. Um, you know, um, a, a Franciscan father by the name of Richard Rohr, he's, he can be a little controversial, but I promise you he's got better fruit than the majority of people who are against him. He would say this concerning, um, concerning, concerning belief, concerning faith, concerning just trusting and abiding in God is that, let me see if I can get this word right. Faith is not about what we can conjure. Faith is a person that mm. we we fall into. That's good. He say that it. again. That's good. I'm not exactly sure if I can say it again, but basically faith is what we fall into. Faith is not about um, contextually, um, intellectually figuring out how it's going to work. So this is what Rohr would say. Richard Rohr would say this. He would say concerning mystery. We have to become okay with mystery. We have to be good with it. But mystery or divine mystery is not something you can't know. Divine mystery is something that you are to know eternally. So you don't exhaust it. So the mysteries of God isn't something that God says, you can't know this. He say, no, you can know it, but it's, um, it's a journey. And it's a, it's a deep, deep ongoing journey into who I am. So mystery becomes an unending, unyielding. So when we talk about protology and eschatology, being the beginning and the end, we can't make it about the foundation and the capstone. Because the moment we do, we, we end up in hierarchy, we end up in a pyramid, and we end up putting the, the roof on the building, and we box God and everybody else in our idea or our paradigm. <coughs> but Alpha and Omega, or protology and eschatology, is a cycle. The, the, the ancient rabbis, Jewish thought, saw time as a circle or a time spiral, kind of like on a circular stairs. Yes, you go up. Yes, you ascend. Yes, there are levels, but you're not going from point A to point B. You're going around. That's how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit circle dance. You're going around. That's how you can redeem the time when the days are evil, because redeeming time means that, that what you thought you lost, that what you thought was a missed opportunity, is coming. You're going to come back around, or it's going to come back around, and you're going to meet up with it again in a different place in your life. But the promises of God aren't things that you miss because you go past them. You can redeem them time because the word kairos is a word that is a moment that has been preceded by a prophetic word or prophetic promise. And the prophetic promises of God are yes and amen in him. So we learned that even if we missed it, we can come back around and we will come back around and we'll be better for it that we can engage, embrace what is necessary. I think the children of Israel demonstrate this to us. The promise is the promised land, but they're for 40 years, they go in a circle. How long do they pass around it? Until As long as it takes. The time will come that they will be able to lay hold of the promise, lay hold of what God had told them they could have. 
and it may not be in our generation. But, but that's when we, this is why we got to get out of the individualistic thinking, the us and them. It's never been about us by ourselves. It's been about the body corporate. So it's, if my promises are out of reach now, I don't need to worry about that because the promises that may seem to be out of reach for me may be for somebody else in the next generation. And what that means is that if it's my promise and I don't get to participate in, in now, but three generations later participate in it, I'm going to have eternal rewards based upon the promises that I've been faithful to steward, not because of uh, what I've seen done now, but what continues after I'm gone. Hey, take, um, take Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a, was a cook in a monastery, a monk. He was not a priest. He sure weren't a bishop. And from my understanding, he wasn't anybody, nobody really wanted to talk. You know, he wasn't somebody anybody cared to. They didn't come to, to get to confess their sins to him. They didn't come to get spiritual guidance from him. But he journaled his relationship of learning how to operate or work, walk in prayer without ceasing, contemplate a prayer. And he wrote and how he learned how to be able to communicate with people, cook dinner, clean kitchen, and never cease praying, always having ecstatic beautiful encounters with God. And he writes the book and he writes the journal. He dies. They find his journal. And all these years later, he's speaking to generations across the world after the fact, because he journaled his encounters. He journaled what he knew about relationship. He journaled what he knew about entering in and abiding within a place of rest and presence. Now we all got a long ways to go. That's for sure. <laughs> Every one of us, but we're on a journey. And, um, a beautiful journey and it's um it, it can be it's challenging but it can also be, be but it can also be beautiful and it is it's always beautiful if we can see it the problem is, is we don't always see the beauty because we're blinded by our own hurts or our own letdowns or our or we we get our hopes up about things and when we or we have to be prepared you know i think there's been a preparation process for us for me, I can't say for you or anybody else, but I know for me, I'm, I don't think that I would have been ready to see and to experience what I'm able to experience now had I not walked where I've walked to this point. And I right. have to remember that as I go through very hard things, um, you know, that there's progress in the process. And I also have to remember that I'm not Holy Spirit Junior. I think someone was talking about earlier about the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Satanists. You know, there's a big old thing going on about the Satanists out in Arizona. And I, I do understand what all that means. But I also know that Trinity is bigger. And just as maybe I wasn't worshiping openly Satan, but every time I take a hit off that, that joint to get um, evade my problems, you know, because I think there is medicinal purposes for marijuana. Uh, especially, you know, I deal with seniors a lot and glaucoma and things of that nature. It's proven. It, it just does. It helps. It does. But, but when I was using it for other means, um, you know, I was just, you know, in a place that could be very well seen as of those. So, you know, it goes back to what that one lady was talking about here on the call about that love and man, that love, you know, that perfect love cast out all fear. And when we understand that Trinity has that type of, it's almost incomprehensible love, 
I've never experienced the closest thing I have is my covenant with my husband and my children's relationship. And then my grandchildren and, and people that are close to me, um, you know, that I can even begin to understand this type of love that is spoken of. And we, I take it for granted a lot of times that, um, you know, we'll throw that I love pizza or I love chocolate or I love roses or I love, you know, certain frequencies of music. It's just not the same. And it has to do with us, um, you know, desensitizing ourselves to what the true meaning of words mean. Words matter. Words are very important. And they have a, uh, they have a, the ability to have the power of life and death. And there, there is also that desensitizing as, you know, Samson laid his head in the lap of Delilah. It talks about it wasn't the first time, it wasn't the second time that he revealed the secret. And so there was a desensitizing and finally he revealed, you know, the power within his strength. And I think that we become, I have become extremely desensitized to understanding that words do matter. And I try to be very conscientious of that now when I'm talking and when I'm communicating, uh, you know, that I'm articulating uh, to the best of my ability to be able to make sure that I'm not contributing to uh, the religious mindsets and false ideology, uh, ideologies and things of that nature, because words do matter. There's power in words. Well, Shani, Matthew 16 gives us, Jesus gives us a very concise and clear definition of what Satanism is. He tells us right. what it is. And so I think that we look at what Satanism is from Jesus' perspective, then we will um, begin to recognize what it's not. Right. So this is what Jesus says. This is after he told Peter, Simon, you're Peter, and I'll build my church, gates of hell, and I'll binding loose, all that. Then in verse 21, he says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised alive. Peter took him aside. You know, the Greek looks like it's, it's intense here, and the Greek is actually manhandled. He literally grabs his, takes him aside. And um, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Hmm. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know, some people say, well, he wasn't talking to Peter. He was talking to, no, he was talking to Peter. Hmm. Peter was operating in Satanism. Why? Watch this. Jesus explains, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but mm. merely but merely human concerns. Humanism, humanism that wants to operate, I don't care if it's humanism outside of who God is, is Satanism. There's a difference between the demonic and the satanic. The satanic deals with man. The demonic deals with being um, either controlled or oppressed by, by um, a different entity. But Satanism or Satan here needs to be understood that it is the part of man that either agrees with an outside force 
or becomes the outside force. I'm not sure where I'm at on that. Do I believe in a real? Yes, I believe in real demons. I've cast out many of them. But what this Satan here is needs to be looked at a little bit more closely because this is the mind that has wisdom concerning the mark of the beast. 666 is the satanic image. Why? Because it is man placing themselves within the framework of being God, not just a God, but the Trinitarian God. It's when we think we know better than God and we try to sidetrack. So an example, if I, for an example, if Shady is in the perfect will of God, let me give you a biblical example. There was a prophet that had a word from God. That prophet had to go deliver the word. And the word said, go where you're going, speak the word, go back, don't talk to nobody. Another prophet, an old prophet, heard about it. And he's like, ah, I got to go. I need somebody to talk to. He runs out, finds him, meets with him and says, hey, come on, come on, eat with me. I'm a prophet too. And the prophet says, I can't talk to you. I got to go. The word of the Lord told me to go deliver the word and then leave. He said, but I'm a prophet too. And, and God said, it's okay. You can come sit at the table and eat with me. Well, he went into his home, sat down, they began to eat. And the word of the Lord came to the older prophets, thus says the Lord, uh, because you disobey my voice, you, you shall surely die. When the young prophet leaves, he gets consumed by a lion. It's not that difficult for the prophets and even the apostles to be speaking by the spirit in one moment and, being, and then begin to speak based upon satanic, um, the satanic nature of them, which is the fallen nature of man the very next moment. We see it over and over and over and over again. It's so easy to do, y'all. And it doesn't mean you're filled with demons. It means that there is another will at work. And it's a will that is resisting and is in, um, is in, is in a um, constant pushback to the will of God. And it is the voice of the accuser because it wants you to accuse God. I say, why hasn't it happened yet? Why haven't we seen it yet? Why don't you do? Why haven't I gotten healed yet? Why am I not? So it's a continual accusing. We then take it into prayer. Because what manifests the nature of Christ in our prayer for others is intercession. We stand in between the person and God in the sense of saying, I'm standing. They're weak right now. I'll be strong for them. Or they have a need. God, what can I do to help alleviate that? Because intercession has to play out in action. That's why faith without works is dead. But when it comes to the satanic, the moment that your prayer turns into accusing, complaining, or manipulation, God, make them do this. God, make them do You have just deviated from the inspiration of the Spirit, and you are now speaking under the authority of satanic accusation. So prayer becomes sin when it's not in the place of other-centered, other-giving love. It becomes selfish. There's, that's the difference. Satanism is selfish. Uh, Anton LaVey understood this. His Bible on Satanism, he didn't even believe in a real devil. He, Anton LaVey, yeah, he was in the dark arts and he was demonized, no doubt about it. But in his mind, he didn't believe in a Satan. He believed that it was Satanism. He got it. He had a truer biblical perspective on Satanism than the church does. He believed that Satanism was no God, man's God. 
no, no, no authority, but what we, we do, what feels good to us. We do what we want to do. So what is Satan is what's the truest form of Satanism? It is those who mind the wants of man and not the concerns or the will of God. That's what Jesus teaches us. And how do we battle again? How do we keep ourselves from it? Jesus goes on in um, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. So what is he calling Satan here? He's referring to Satan, at least in the context of Matthew 16, as men who don't deny themselves as Satanism. Men who doesn't deny themselves and they're concerned only about what they want. That's satanic. That's Satanism. But to be a follower of Christ and to be free of Satanism is to deny themselves, take up the cross and follow him. So then he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Now he's saying that Satanism is a desire to want all things yet at the expense of their own soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the son, son of man is going to come in his father. Here's the son of man. This is different than the son of God's appearing. Uh, the son of man, of course, this is dealing with the judgment because God still judges things. We just don't like that because we either get so far into grace. that Well, how kind of good God judge or judgment isn't what we think it is. Judgment is saying I'm turning the lights on and I'm going to allow them to um, I'm going to allow the light to illuminate all the dark places and the people who love the darkness to the light will resist the light. And therefore that will ultimately allow them to enter into a place of self-destruction rather it be war famine or anything i personally don't believe how any christian can adhere to any kind of form of war period yeah you may not you don't have to agree with me on that but i would ask you to see what jesus thinks about it <laughs> we said what well, revelation 19 or revelation 20 revelation 19 he's a one rice white horse and he's making war you know Horrible translation. You know, I've given myself for a reason to this. The Greek doesn't say he's making war. The Greek says that he is in righteousness and justice. He wages a polemic or polemacy. It is a war of the word. It's the war of the preaching of the gospel. So those on the white horses uh, behind them are the ones that come to herald the message of the Logos, the word that's riding forth. So he strikes the nations with the word or the sword out of his mouth, which is the war he's making, which is the message of the gospel. So people are going to either fall by that sword and rise into his life, or they're going to resist the sword, which is the light that comes out of his mouth. So, and then he shepherds the nations with the rod of iron. We say in the in your translations, it says he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The word rule is the exact same Greek word that you find in Ephesians chapter four, verse 11. He gave some to be pastors. The word here then is he shepherds the nations with the rod of iron, which is an unbreakable authority. So we have to make sure that when we read Jesus in Revelation, we don't turn him into a different Jesus that's in the Gospels. Because he doesn't change. We have to understand the apocalyptic language that's being written here and quit thinking we got it all figured out because we don't. This is the thing. And I want to give you another C. Baxter, um, C. Baxter Kruger quote, and I'm done for the night. Um, and I'll get to my family. This is what he says. Uh, many, and, no, actually, he's quoting, um, he's, he's actually quoting George MacDonald here. So it's a George MacDonald quote. 
uh, George McDonald is the one inspired C.S. Lewis, by the way. And he says this, many of, I love the way he writes it because I'm, God's working in me in this area, guys, because I get Satan, Satanism, the satanic, I, I lash a hold of it often because I get frustrated and angry with, with people. And I get frustrated. And this is not this is not the nature of God working in me. So we have to understand that. George McDonald says it so beautifully. He said, "Many a good souls." This is talked about after after they after they after they die on this earth. Uh, many a good soul will one day be absolutely horrified when they actually they will be horrified about what they have thought and taught when they actually see him as he is. Many good souls are going to be absolutely, it, there's, it's a family embarrassment. We are going to be horrified when we realize how we misrepresented his goodness and how we misrepresented his kindness and his love and his mercy. We're going to be, oh my, I, I can't believe that I, I made you out to be a monster. I can't believe I told people you're this monster. You know what he's going to say? Just let me love you. He just wants to love you. And he does, but he wants it to be reciprocal. You know that the father loves you in the exact same way he loves Jesus? He loves you in the exact same way. You're so precious and special to him, every one of you. You are so precious and special to him he loves you so much and he is concerned about what you're going through i'm done for tonight guys i love you all so much thank you for tuning in thank you for everything you guys do thank you for believing in the in the the word that god's put in, in my mouth um i really am thankful for all of you i really am i love you guys and um i look forward to next month and just a heads up, um, I got something um, going on tomorrow with um, with Raymond and Linda. I think it's tomorrow, Friday or Saturday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, tomorrow. I'm tired, guys. We have um, at one o'clock Central Standard Time. <laughs> Raymond's laughing at me, <laughs> uh, but we uh, one o'clock my time Central Standard Time. I'll be with Raymond and Linda. That's my. I always look forward to that because. It's one of my favorite times of the week. I always this. I always look forward to being with them. And then um, Sunday night, I've got um, Bishop Wayne Daniels. To, we're going to enter into conversation. He's an Orthodox bishop, but he was Pentecostal first, so he still speaks in tongues and believes in all. But he's got a handle, a pretty good handle on the on the faith. So we're going to be um, we're going to be in some dialogue on tomorrow night, and then Monday evening y'all i got um matthew hester and um if y'all don't know who he is y'all gonna be y'all gonna y'all gonna be blessed um we've done ministry together we've run in some of the same circles um one thing i love about him so much he was getting his stuff before i was we were doing a conference together one time and um one of the guest speakers was a guy from south africa who uh, anyway um he he was, he's coming in to preach penal substitution. I'm like, well, I can't handle this. You know, Matthew, Matthew, did, Matthew don't care. I don't know how he gets away with the stuff. I, I could not get away with what he got away with the circle, same circles of people and influence. He, he did not go to the, he did, he left, he, he left before the service started, 
went to the movie theater and watched um, um Guard- Guardians of the Galaxy because it just come out. So he sat and watched Guardians of the Galaxy while this guy was preaching this because he knew what he was going to preach this way wasn't this. So he went watch a good movie, come back, and act like he never left. But anyway, Matthew Hester will be with me on Monday night, and guys, um, I look forward to that because he's a longtime brother. We. You know, we were close at one time, but things have happened uh, that distance us. But we've been um, nothing ever happened to cause a rift, just time and just no communication. And we've been communicating and talking here and there. And um, we have a very similar personality. We, we can make the goofiest jokes about things, but he's brilliant. He's a he's a he's a he understands what we're talking about. He has the same DNA. Y'all going to enjoy it. What are you thinking, Ramy? You thinking uh, you don't need two of us? <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was thinking about, I was just thinking about how you said, you know, he, he thinks like how we understand, and I'm thinking to myself, no, he thinks how you understand, because you, you know, you know, every time you you speak, Shane, I'm always being, um, how do you say, um, challenged. Okay. Right. Yeah, he's stretching you. You know, because the fact is, I don't hear these type of words. I'm a plain, simple. I guess you want to call it country boy, but in the city, you know, hey, he's, he's a hey. city country boy. Okay, you know, and it's like I'm trying to grab all this, and like, oh god, you know. But but the point is, you know, uh, I just want to share. I love my Sundays. I love my barbecue. You know, <laughs> you know, but definitely I'll be there tomorrow before I go barbecue, you know. So. <laughs> well, that was going to be later in the evening. That was Matthew. It's going to be, I think, about six or seven o'clock. Well, I, amen. Praise God. Praise God. You won't, y'all won't regret it. He, listen, it's, it's, I'll give y'all another one to listen to that simplify this and, and don't get mad at me for saying it, but it's, but he's, he's, he's got a great handle on this. He, he was controversial on some of the, the, the wacky things he used to do in his earlier years of his ministry. He don't do that stuff no more because he saw mm-hmm. what happened to other people that tried to mock him and, or mimic him and be like him. And they started making a mockery out of a lot of stuff. And he doesn't do the things he used to do in that because of that. But John Crowder, um, and John Crowder is the, probably the first person that I ever actually heard that had um, that had a handle on the Christology. I'm like, wow, this is this is phenomenal. But I didn't get it. But I but there was a frequency that resonated with me. And um, so and it's taken years because we have been handed something that is is it, it, it's all transactional. John Calvin was a lawyer, so everything he set up in his incident is all transactional and. And it's like, you do this, you get this, do this. That's not what this is. This is not a, the whole entire idea of God being a judge is not a Western courtroom. Judgment is about God saying, okay, um, here's what I read in Daniel. And the time came that judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high God. If when we truly learn the nature of God, we're going to begin to pray like this. And I have prayed and I will continue to pray. Judge me. Abba, judge me. Why? Because I know he loves me. And I know that his judgments are perfect and that his judgments are always redemptive. So his judging me isn't to kill me. His judging me is to make me or conform me into the image of his son. So anyway, it's going to be great. 
I do think that um, Matthew probably Matthew is um, he probably he'll probably be able to communicate this message in a, a little bit more simply. I'm learning how to slow down, so I'm trying to explain it very thoroughly, but yet at the same time, it's still a lot to digest. So it's more about allowing what is true to continue and allow what's not true to fall away. And in time, God will work us all out. But um, I do my best in every instance to carefully choose my words and to stay faithful to the scriptures and to the mind of those who wrote those scriptures. So if I can't prove what I'm teaching biblically, then mm-hmm. I will let you know this is extra biblical, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything, but go to the text and I'm going to wrestle with the text, with the text and with the other texts and all the other different texts so that we have a context so that we eliminate the proof text and we no longer have a pretext for a proof text. And we learned that the text, it has to be the context of the whole text <laughs> and that's scripture. <laughs> I, I love you guys. You I'll send you a text. Okay. <laughs> I love y'all. I'm, I'm going to go be with the family. I and love you, again, love you love too, Shane. God bless. <laughs> bye bye. Oh, Lord, help you.